As trade season starts to reach the boiling point, what do we know from past big trades, like when Boston traded Mookie Betts to L.A.? I'll ask Rudy Gamble about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 29th. It's show number 30 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Rudy Gamble from Razball, discussing a retrospective discussion about the lesson of the Mookie Betts trade, about managing player projections in a crazy season, his hot takes on the latest baseball news, and his boons and banes. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Mackenzie Gore and Garrett Cooper. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including bad news for Mike Trout, the Andrew Benintendi deal, and returns to action for Miguel Sano, George Kirby, and Dane Dunning. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Detroit outfielder Kerry Carpenter. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about a gripe I have with Major League Baseball's official scoring. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The big lottery still doesn't have a winner. We gotta talk some baseball. Well, I'm sure you heard the Mega Millions Intrastate Lottery has no winner again. The prize going up to near a billion dollars is what they say, but the lottery I was referring to is for Juan Soto, where the winner gets to pay the better part of half a billion. I read about this on Thursday. Some teams that got mentioned in the sweepstakes for Juan Soto in alphabetical order, Atlanta, Los Angeles, New York Mets, New York Yankees, St. Louis, San Diego, Tampa, Texas, and Toronto. Pick your winner. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Rudy Gamble from Razball. Rudy, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Oh, thanks for having me, Patrick. How many drafts are you playing this season, and how are your teams doing so far? Yeah, I'm really um, diligent about managing my work, my uh, league load. So I'm in nine, which does sound like a lot, but two are best ball. Um, those didn't did okay, but not didn't go above the cut line uh, on either. That's cut line and Razbol. Two draft champions leagues on NFBC. Those are doing okay, doing pretty well. I think they're at like 80, like high 80s and like high 90s points. But um, they're neither are favorites to win. Maybe slight favorites to cash. And then five fab leagues. Um, one main event on NFBC and uh, an OC, which is the 12 team one labor tout and a league called TARF, which is one of these area leagues, but there's the Texas area one. Uh, I am not winning in any, I feel like I've got like all my teams are like good to very good, but none great. And so it's um, a little frustrating. There's just a certain serendipity I find that happens with your teams that do really well. 
the serendipity could be like there's just some seasons where every you know you just hit more um this is not the one but basically if you if you could create an all-star team <laughs> like there's just parts yeah. of drafts that i just want to combine in frankenstein Across all those leagues, Rudy, uh, do you have any players that are really held in common? Uh, seven out of nine teams or six out of nine teams? For good and bad, I, I do a good job of, especially in first 10 rounds, diversifying. So, even, and, it, and I don't really, and I diversify, like, to me, like the difference between having labor, which is like a free just industry league and like a main event where you have a lot of money on the line. Um, it still doesn't matter. It's still kind of the same mental load. So I still don't want to have too much in there, but uh, yeah, I'd say like that group that are on maybe like three plus teams, some it worked out great. Some, <laughs> some not so good. Who worked out great? And I have Aaron judge on two teams. Um, and maybe that I might even have him on a best ball. Uh, Kyle Tucker was a guy I targeted and, and while he hasn't and he's been quite good for where he was going there are other guys that I should have had on more teams like Shane McClanahan and ended up with on one the guy who was on the most was Tim Anderson and um, he was a kind of a second round target and he hasn't been great but good probably a bit better value in a third round pick but yeah he wasn't going to make it to third round right in the leagues I have him are probably my leagues where my stolen bases are within middle of the pack draft season these days. It's like not being in a major stolen base hole. So like for my main event, it was, we started with Tucker and Anderson. And I think it was um, the thinking behind that was really good. And even looking back, I think it, it's worked out well. You targeted those five category players that you thought for sure were going to get you stolen bases early. So you didn't have to go chasing them later on. Yeah, it, it's all part of like, I mean, my drafting, a lot of it is a kind of this bottom up thinking. If you feel you can get it later in the draft, then you could wait. You've got to come out of the first five to seven rounds with a couple of stolen base guys. Putting yourself behind the eight ball there is uh, is brutal. So I, I'm a generally balanced drafter. What players on your rosters really let your teams down? Jesse Winker just kind of crushed a couple teams for me. And I feel like that was just, this is all before the trade. When I didn't draft him at all after he got traded out of Cincinnati, but that was a, a bad break. I had him in the same bucket as JD Martinez and Stanton, who I have on a bunch of teams. The ones with Winker are not doing as well. Another guy with injuries and bad luck and something like that is Seiya Suzuki, who I really liked um, his value. And he is doing well now, but you know, that injury. Re- you know, and he had like a bad month right before the injury. Really took some uh, steam out of that pick. Yeah. They got him in the 10th round in main event. You know, so pick around, you know, 130, 140. I thought, man, this guy, where he's going to hit, um, his top outcomes, I thought were really good and worth gambling on. I'd say, like, in general, I found is like, for the most part, my hitting has been quite good. Pitching has kind of been good to bad, never kind of great across five categories this year. Anybody you can think of on any of your rosters that was 20th round, sort of a super value? I feel like there were some nice hits here and there. Um, I know in like my DCs, I'll say like this, there was one league where I went light on middle infield. I waited way too long 
to get a middle my third MI. And um, that league has Nico Horner and and uh, Tyro Estrada. So it ended up working out extremely well. Estrada, I think I got as a free agent in some other leagues because he was on my radar. But I don't think Horner's year has been markedly different than Tim Anderson's. <laughs> and I'd say almost the same for Estrada, minus, you know, maybe some average. And that that's the only thing that kind of makes the Tim Anderson takes a little bit of the steam out of it, where I'm like, man, there were some MIs that I could have got that that would have been relatively close. Pitching, I have Burns on one, but I typically wasn't going first two rounds. And um, it's amazing how, like, you know, I think Shane McClanahan and Labor solved all, overwrote, like, having Giolito in that one. But the main event team, drafting Barris ahead of McClanahan and Manoa, which uh, was what ADP was, that in itself could be, like, 12 standing points. I don't think I could have got McClanahan ahead of Barrios in the leagues where I got Barrios, but I really believed in Barrios this year and he's just been terrible. I ended up writing a facts and flukes story about him for baseball HQ and, and what I concluded after looking at all the, you know, Statcast data and the baseball savant and Brooks and all of these things was he's just inconsistent and there's really nothing that you can say to explain that just level of inconsistency. Right, and he and he's been that way through his career, but his season-long stats show a lot of stability. It's a very weird um, mix, um, you know, where like someone like Luis Castillo had a really tough start to last year, but I don't think his has been a streaky pitcher in his career. Um, but yeah, I generally avoided Barrios. He that was one where yeah, I'm gonna throw it on Steamer. That <laughs> Steamer really liked him going into the year. It's just trying to find those little iter. How do I get just a little better? What what is going to help me avoid Barrios next year? It's tough, but I do think that little extra of uh, being able to cross off a few guys on your list. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Rudy Gamble from Rasball. And Rudy, I'm curious about the site itself, and in particular, the tone. I find it really interesting that... You guys seem to really encourage a lot of wordplay, a lot of uh, a lot of punning, and a lot of uh, you so know that kind punning. of stuff. And yeah. is, was that a uh, an overt decision when the thing got rolling that we are going to have this, or were you kind of all following in Gray Albright's footprints in, in that regard? It's an authentic tone, like it. That like we we can't stop making jokes. You have to be authentic in your tone the best writers are so for better or worse we kind of have to be like that and and the more mundane the topic the more the humor comes out the biggest difference between gray and i because people think we're opposites and it's not we're we're both that way right-brained we're you know probably no matter what we're talking about thinking about a joke the difference is that i i've kind of got some left brain mathematical stuff going on and so there's there's times if I'm talking about something like how the player raider works, there's no the humor button is turned off for a minute. It's suppressed. I think it works for several things in fantasy because reality is, you know, this is an area where this is a choice by us all. Even even if you work in the industry, it's a choice. It's not something you're making. You're getting hugely rich on. Um, I think it's been rewarding for Gray and I, um, but not 
particularly financially, um, but it's something you do for fun. And I mean, even something like uh, previously Roto World, now NBC Sports Edge, you know, they inject humor. So the news, when you're talking about rankings, which can get really dry, um, those are natural things. And I think when Gray and our writers do that, I think it makes a lot of sense. As you get more analytical, if you're talking about like why Barrios is having a bad year, yeah, you could inject a little humor and pathos into it, right? But for the most part, it starts getting kind of, uh, it's tougher to integrate it there. Okay, let me talk to your left brain for a second. Your site also covers NFL fantasy, NBA fantasy. Do you do projections for those sports as well? Yes. Yeah, so that's I, 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 basically all I do at Rasbol. So there's some back-end stuff in business, de- biz dev stuff. But for the most part, I'm basically head of projections, anything to do with the data ingestion, player pages. So both the stats that are running every day that we're getting from data feeds and the projections for daily, weekly, preseason, rest of seasons are all on me. When I look at the NFL, when I look at football in general at whatever level, it seems like it would be inherently way more difficult to project because unlike baseball, which is a series of discrete battles, in football, it's a bunch of guys interacting all at the same time. And, and for example, you could have the greatest skills in the world as a quarterback, Archie Manning, for instance, and you're playing in a very terrible team context and your results just never look as good as somebody who's maybe not as skilled as you, but happens to be in a much better team context. And I wonder how difficult is it to, to create projections in situations where the team context is so important that is basically one of the key differences where i think nfl and nba are similar um that the way you're attacking it a lot of it is top down you know what are what's a team going to do um in terms of uh for like football it would be like factoring in a bit of their components What's the likely point distribution going to be based on their personnel? What's their pass rush split going to be? And you basically have all these team totals. And then it's really about how do you divide it up? And part of I think doing this well is basically building processes that, that you're not doing this by hand, that, you, that it's dynamically updating based on various inputs. So yeah, football tends to be very top down and to come up with a way that you know, when I run the football stuff per week, it's basically saying the New York Giants are likely going to have uh, average 2.6 wide receivers per snap. So distribute those 2.6 times the number of plays across all the wide receivers. They're going to pass this many times. You got to distribute all the targets. And somewhat similar with NBA, like where you'd say NFL, you start with the snaps. NBA, you start with the minutes. And then it's forcing it to like add up to the total. Um, so it's the one easy way to me of like checking the fidelity of NFL or particularly NFL, but NBA projections is like add it up for a team. If the quarterback passing yards doesn't equal the receiver yards, yeah, and that includes the running backs and tight ends, yeah, it's hacky. With baseball, not so much. 
Yeah, and baseball has the team context, of course, as well. Wins, saves, uh, RBIs and runs. And that's Those, something they have right. to account for. But it, it's not the same as in football where every play hinges on everybody doing his job more or less well. And if uh, one guy fails, the whole thing fails. And it's that's really hard to predict. And then you've only got 16 games and what, 1,600 plays or something like that to, to, to project instead of like 6,000 pitches? And baseball has so many kind of re- replacement players along the way. Um, so, yeah, personally, I, I, I'll sanity check baseball projections at the team level. But when I'm doing like preseason, I'm not caring that, oh, the Yanks have to equal this amount of games and this amount of plate appearances. Um, because it's basically, that, that to me is fake fidelity or you know, fake rigor. Because inevitably, if you force it to equal a total, um, it you're basically over-projecting a bunch of players in there because it's almost like you have to start with, I don't know, for like 10%. Every year, there's guys you're like, ah, I wouldn't have thought he would have played 50 games or he would have thrown 50 innings. So I, I basically am making almost like player-by-player assumptions on on playing time for for baseball and like that's that's preseason rest of season thinking uh with rest of season there's you know recent games could could kind of weigh in and then daily and weekly there's certain things where the forcing function makes a lot of sense that's why it it works well with steamer and i because for the most part steamer does the rates and the skills i do the playing time um and then you know, and, and kind of, uh, you know, my analysis of my stuff tends to be the conscious of the playing time and the, the rate. So I could always kick stuff back to uh, Steamer when um, when something's looking a bit off, which like happens uh, mostly a preseason thing. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Rudy Gamble from Rasball. And Rudy, uh, you responded on Twitter not long ago to a fellow named Kyle A. Glazer, who had a post about the Mookie Betts trade, and he said when a team trades a star in his prime, they almost never get equal value back. And that would, in this instance, mean Boston didn't get value back for Mookie Betts. Even if the acquiring team takes on some other bad contracts, you replied that trades that dump nine figures left on a bad free agent contract should hurt like this versus the nonsense Adrian Gonzalez-Carl Crawford trade with the Dodgers a a number of years back, I think in 2012. For those who don't remember, Boston traded three all-stars, Gonzalez, Carl Crawford, and Josh Beckett, plus Cash and a utility player, and got back James Loney, a first baseman, and a couple of minor leaguers who never really panned out. So how does this all add up? And I wonder if there's a lesson here for fantasy players who are making trades about the value of getting the big star versus getting the prospects and and bits and pieces that you get in exchange. Is it always a case where the guy who gets the big star wins the deal? In the short term, probably. But the trade with Mookie Betts meant the Dodgers took on the David Price contract. David Price had one helped win the, the Red Sox World Series, really conquer his demons. Um, and David Price was a great pitcher. You know, he'll, he'll, he's a Hall of Very Good guy. And yeah, unfortunately, his, um, you know, but 
probably by the time they made that trade, I think it was kind of consensus like, ooh, that is that is a bad contract. You would ideally would not have that on the books. But it's partially because every big contract is front loaded in value. So the, the Red Sox ex- got the value with price. The year before they trade, they definitely got bad value. And I think it I think it was like close to a hundred million left on that contract. And so thing with like a Mookie Betts is that he's gonna provide surplus value early in his next contract. Because he he was coming up for free agency, but Mookie Betts contract in a, two years is probably gonna start being a negative. Um, although money doesn't really matter for these Dodgers. There's probably a little vitriol in that because Basically, I think the Red Sox won a World Series because the Dodgers took the awful Carl Crawford contract. Yeah, and then somehow Theo Epstein repeated it with Jason Hayward, where you you spent a ton on a guy with a lot of defensive value, and that doesn't age well. So Carl Crawford was just an awful contract. It didn't seem that ill-advised when they did it, but it really would. I mean, the guy just wasn't healthy. And... As far as I could tell, the only reason that trade happened was because Adrian Gonzalez is Mexican-Americans. And the Dodgers, with new ownership, was like, we want to help appeal to Mexican-Americans. And kind of jumpstart the franchise after the McCourt fiascos. But it's also hard to, to predict with a great amount of certainty whether the prospects are going to pan out. So it's kind of like... One guy's trading his downward, downward pointing guy and hoping that his estimation of the downward momentum is not going to be overstated. And the other guy's picking up a bunch of guys on an upward tilt, and he's got to be worried about not getting that vector correct and having the pr- prospects either not pan out or pan out slowly. But in the Gonzalez deal, I mean, he and Crawford were actually pretty good for the Dodgers in the year after that trade. Uh, you know, uh, oh, was Crawford good? I mean, 116 games, he batted 283, stole 15 bags. Josh Beckett was terrible, and and I'll I'll grant you that. But, but he, he seemed like such a good clubhouse guy. The, <laughs> these two hitters, uh, Gonzalez and Crawford, I mean, that team went to the. NLCS and lost in a tight race with St. Louis. It wasn't like they they got these two players and hit the skids. They were a good team that year. With the big contract, it's all about hitting a window. In general, their contracts were above their value. They they were negative value. But if money's not an object, they could still be positive players. And the the thing was, their their value was just going down because they they were over both over their hill to some extent. And yeah, but by the end, I, I mean, Adrian Gonzalez on its own ended up being like a decent value, but it, it could literally have just been an Adrian like, and if it was just trading Adrian Gonzalez for some prospects, that would have generally made sense. It was to take on the Carl Crawford contract for the luxury, for the benefit of having an okay yeah. First base value. That that kind of was like, what? Where like, yeah, that David Price contract, no one would have traded for it. No. Like that would that would have been a type you'd have had to chip in half the money or not more. If it was just trading Mookie bets and not taking on that bad contract, kind of like we're talking with Soto now with the Corbin contract or or the Strasbourg contract for or Washington. Both, yeah. Right. So like basically 
if they traded Soto, Strasburg, and Corbin to a team, you kind of see that ledger of saying, okay, well, Soto's surplus value over the next five years might be $70 million. You're going to have to sign him to a big contract that after the five years, it's not going to be good. So you'd ideally be in a good window for it. And then like Corbin, you you then if let's just say it's seventy million, I'm just making that up. But say he's seventy million, like Corbin's probably like negative forty or fifty million. You, basically, if a good team gets him, they, he doesn't even touch the field. <laughs> You're just giving him a check and settling. And yeah, Strasburg, it's hard to get anything looking at that on a ledger sheet. I mean, I guess you'd have to value Soto at something like hundred fifty million or something in order to balance out those contracts. And that each prospect has a certain value. I mean, I've seen some values and they surprise me. And probably one of the reasons I'm not as into that is is my general feeling that um, I really don't like the rookie contract and then second contract, the disparities. Yeah. Once a guy does well, or even if you give a guy 150 games, the surplus value on the first contracts I find uh, unsavory. It's really unfair, and and I think that the MLBPA has tried to address that in in collective bargaining, not with any great success. But this idea of teams now not just trading players for their talents, but like the NBA, there's a lot of financial finagling going on in moving dollar values around. And it seems logical to me that if you're acquiring uh, Juan Soto, but you have to take Patrick Corbin and, and Strasburg's contracts in, then the return that Washington can legitimately expect in terms of top prospects or guys who are playing now is, is going to be reduced because it's, it ends up just being a dollar for dollar type of thing. And, uh, and how the two teams want to distribute the dollars that they think they have available. And I'm wondering, what you think about this in terms of fantasy baseball when guys are doing dump trading? Is this something that they can look at and start to learn lessons from? Well, I mean, I think when you, the dump trading, I guess you're talking more in like um, dynasty leagues. Dynasty and keeper, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the reality is dynasty leagues are have do this with more ruthless abandon because um, you don't have a fan base to worry about. Um, and you know, and so the the thought of having a rebuild is is pretty much baked into the dyna, uh, to owning a dynasty team. You're not like you want to come in first, and yeah, once you see. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I mean, it it, it all matters, but it, I, I do think with the dynasty team, what a lot of the thought process is like, I am not going to win with Juan Soto in the next three years. And then, and assuming you have a, a pretty good contract system there, you might as well trade them for the prospects. But yeah, it, it might not be the uh, the best of deals. There's always overvaluing of prospects. So they, you look at if you go through all the major league teams, like for every trade where you kind of go, ha ha, let's say like the the infamous Chris Archer trade, yeah, where where Tampa got Glass now, Baz and Meadows. Obviously, doesn't look quite as bad right now, does it? <laughs> With Glasnow hurt and Meadows fell Go off on, a cliff, yeah, yeah. and now he's Isaac Paredes. It's like so. Tampa kind of creates this thing where they they do a good job, but it's like you know for everything like that, or when Boston had to trade trade to Hanley Ramirez to get Beckett. Um, there's a bunch where you're just like, 
wow, none of these prospects really panned out. Yeah, I mean the the Braves Braves were great at it in the nineties. Yeah, it seemed like if they traded a guy he didn't do well. Um I don't even know if the Yankees have gotten burned. I'm trying to think, is there anyone that Dodger any of these teams gave up where you're like, wow. Like it's it's so rare. Yeah, they seem to start every negotiation with the following prospects are off limits in this discussion. And that it basically includes all the guys they think are gonna do well. And that's why there's been a lot of uh, talk about the Yankees dealing for Soto. And the first thing they say is Volpe's off the list. You can't have him. And so if you're Washington, you have to immediately start in this kind of one notch down position and you're, you're reaching more for value than probably you should. Uh, One more thing before we take a break. You also posted a comment about the state of scorekeeping in big league baseball. And I think you're right, because I think this is a real issue, especially for fantasy, but not just for fantasy. What do you think is wrong with the way that official scoring is being done and what could be done about it? Right. So I kind of see like there's two types of plays that should be reconsidered. If a fly ball should be caught, you know, and we, and there's percentages now with StatCast. (laughs) that's owned by MLB. So they shouldn't have an issue finding it. Um, And the only reason a ball isn't caught is because of a blatant misplay. And that could include losing the ball in the sun. It should be an error. Like the pitcher did everything right. It should have been caught. And the fact that it's only an error if it hits their glove is ridiculous. Like as if, you know, if you're going to call it earned versus unearned, to me, the true meaning is, it is earned when it was a high probability for a hit or even an average probability for a hit. But if a pop-up falls beneath three guys and it would have been caught probably 95 to 99% of the time, how is that earned? (laughs) And if you have to give an error to the team or give a half error to two players, I don't care. Like that seems better than the existing one. And I, you know, the, the example there is that joke of an in-the-park grand slam for Rymel Tapia the other day. Just the other night, yeah. I mean, Duran just misses the ball. And yeah, for fantasy, I think I had I had Eovaldi on a team, and he got like three extra earned runs or something. Um, not the end of the world, but it's just a, it's just a joke. Like, <laughs> um, you know, if you're going to have that thing, I mean, like, like no one calls a football touchdown unearned because someone misses a tackle but if you're going to have that framework in baseball use it the the other case that drives me a bit nutty is an outfielder dies for a fly ball that would drop in as a single like and he misses it and the runner gets extra bases sometimes a whole in the park home run it's like okay well how is that different than if you make a good you try to make a play on the ball a ground ball and then you throw it into the stands or you throw it like you don't call that a triple. If a, if a ground ball gets thrown over the first baseman's head and it's in Oakland and it travels around a bit, a guy gets the third. It's a, it's a single maybe with two, with a, a two base error. Why is it different? Like, I don't like, I'm not faulting the, the outfielder that makes this. Well, I am faulting it. Like, okay, well, you know, if you make the catch, there's a reward seemingly to it. Well, sorry, risk. That's what risk reward is right now. There is no risk reward. Just dive for it. It goes past you. It's not on the fielder. It's on the pitcher. Right. And the, and the hitter gets this 
kind of fake home run or fake extra bases. So I feel like if you're going to have the the whole framework, call yeah, those two types can get frustrating. It doesn't seem that hard to to do, but because it's something that sounds um, logical and something that most people would enjoy, it's probably not in Rob Manfred's to-do list. <laughs> no, I don't think it is, but it, it really ought to be, and for various reasons. If I was the pitcher who got victimized for the extra three earned runs, I'd be mad, and I, I would go to somebody, and, and I, of course you can't really go to the official score and say, I want you to change this, although there is a mechanism to do that. But it's ridiculous, as you said, that the pitcher makes does everything right, gets a can of corn fly ball, and ends up giving up four earned runs. You know, and it just seems ludicrous on its face. To me, the biggest joke ones are the Jose Canseco bonk off the head and and yep. and over the fence, and that's a home run. That's absurd. Anytime the ball would have landed inside the field of play and the guy volleys it out of bounds for a home run, then that's not a home run in my books. And there's there's all kinds of other things. A little later on in my uh, extra innings comment, I'm going to be talking about how they award wins in relief because that's another area that seems to be completely ridiculous and doesn't even yeah. make sense. And you know that thing yeah. you said about the, um, the ball doesn't touch his glove? You. Yeah. That's not in the official scoring rules. In fact, it specifically says that whether the ball touches the guy's glove is not an issue, but they all talk about it as though it's one of the sort of defining characteristics of an error. It has to have touched leather and it doesn't have to touch leather according to the rules, but they just seem to be reinventing the rules to suit whatever agenda they have. And I think part of it is, Rudy, I think these scorekeepers are ex-newspaper people or media people or current media people. And they want to stay on the good side of the guys that they're going to be interviewing tomorrow for their stories. Because if they give them an error, maybe the guy says, oh yeah, you're the guy who gave me the error, go pound sand. I have, yeah, it's what I, I don't have an idea. I feel like it, it is the uh, informal thing and in that generally the scorekeeper's going to stick with that. Except, yeah, that one weird case this year where like, uh, they gave the, a different reliever the win. They didn't give like Clay Holmes a win because he had a blown save. They gave it to a different reliever. And that was like the first time I'd seen that. I could remember seeing that. But yeah, there I, I, I already agree with whatever you're going to say on the extra innings thing with with general win allocation. And I basically, uh, even just something as simple as, like for the most part, if a starting pitcher leaves with the lead, um. I would say something along the lines of like, even if the the team comes back and they do win, I would still consider that guy for the the win, like that, right? Like, it, yeah. I mean, like he left right now, leading the, and they won, right? I mean, like, yeah, it, it gets really complicated if they don't leave with the lead. You know, then is it it? But I, I wouldn't even mind if it was something like you give the guy the win the start of the win if he's the most valuable pitcher like so you know um in a case where like um instead of giving the reliever the win by default like if you if you created some and it could be even codified you could create something that does this um that says yeah like uh okay well if the guy gave up less than four runs and pitched six plus innings 
Um, and, you know, there wasn't a reliever who had, I don't know, two scoreless innings. <laughs> like, you could create some framework for it. I mean, from a fantasy side, wouldn't it be even more exciting to know that even though the guy didn't leave with the lead, he could things could conspire and he can get the win? Like, that's how that would that would be even more exciting for fantasy. It probably um, would. Uh, Rudy, we'll take a break here. I've got to get to my National League and American League news with uh, Nick and with Ray, and then we'll come back later and we'll talk about uh, real baseball news and get your boons and banes. Great. Rudy Gamble works for Razball, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Greg Pyron looks at five American League players, including Xander Bogarts, Frankie Montas, and Chris Flexen. Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, just one of the great resources available all the time when you're a member of the team at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be with you. Well, let's start in San Diego, where some uh, bad news for one-time super prospect, then struggling prospect, and this year kind of an average starter, Mackenzie Gore, goes to the IL. Gore had struggled since mid-June, allowing 27 runs over his last seven outings, covering just 22 innings pitched, and now headed to the IL. He'll be monitored closely over the next two weeks, but counting on him for any meaningful fantasy production over the rest of uh, 2022 isn't the way to go. We had already cut Gore back based on his performance, and now we're scrapping most of his remaining projected innings. San Diego was down to a five-man rotation, with Nick Martinez now becoming a, even a more important swingman. Martinez, 3.66, ERA, 4.29, expected ERA through 76 innings pitch, gets most of Gore's vacated innings. So also watch for the Padres to be more aggressive on the trade market. For starting pitchers, they have a lot of interesting prospects if they want to go after Louis Castillo. Yeah, I was going to suggest that they might be front and center when it comes to picking up one of the starters who's being bandied about. And of course, we're going to talk in a minute that Cincinnati has already made a deal uh, trading away Tyler Naquin. So it looks like the house cleaning might be underway there. Of course, at this time of year, it always comes down to who's willing to give the biggest package of prospects and, and maybe major league ready talent and that kind of thing. So it would be interesting to see what San Diego does, Nick, because, gosh, they're a team, I think, that has playoff aspirations, and rightly so, but they're going to need to shore up this rotation. They are indeed, and certainly, uh, you know, if they're, if they're expected to compete, they're going to have to shore up the rotation. They've also got some bullpen problems that we'll talk about in a minute. Why wait a minute? Let's talk about it now. Uh, Dan Marcus at BaseballHQ.com wrote about Taylor Rogers' recent struggles in the San Diego closers role, gosh, he started off the season looking like the next coming of Dennis Eckersley, but for the last couple of weeks, uh, not so much. Well, he started the season, uh, and, and when Darby Marcus wrote this, this was on 
published on July 25th, so uh, published last Monday. Uh, at that point, he said that uh, Rodgers began the season by surrendering only one earned run across his first 20.1 innings pitched, maintaining a 23-4 to strikeout-to-walk ratio. Since that time, since that excellent beginning, he's allowed 15 earned runs across his last 19 appearances and 18.1 innings. Still a very impressive 21-3 to strikeout-to-walk ratio during that span, but only one of his nine outings in that span has been scoreless. So setting aside an arbitrary cutoff, we're almost two full months into fairly consistent struggles for Rodgers. And despite saying that, this write-up is meant to take the tone and more keep an eye on him rather than push the panic button. But after, after uh, he wrote this, this week, two more blown saves for Taylor Rodgers, uh, one on Tuesday night, one on Wednesday night. Tuesday night uh, against Detroit, two hits and earned run. Uh, a blown save, and the next night, only two-thirds of an inning pitched, two earned runs. Uh, one of them, he took a loss. Uh, one, Both of them were blown save. One of them, Nick Martinez, came in and actually got the save. So some real struggles for, for Rodgers. Uh, they have said this week that uh, right now he's not in danger of losing his job, but that down the road, it's something they may want to look at. Unless there's an acquisition, he's likely, uh, Rodgers is probably a safe source for saves for the final two months. Other possibilities, Luis Garcia was a candidate for the role prior to the Padres opening day trade for Rodgers. He has shown closer-capable skills, 1.33 leverage index, 25% strikeout rate, 0.5 home run per nine, 3.13 XCRA. Nick Martinez got the save on Tuesday night. He is also a possibility. Another uh, option would be Andre Morijan, another name to consider. has been used in extremely low-leverage situations since his return. 0.24 leverage index, but did throw in the seventh inning immediately before Garcia in the Padres' two-to-one win over the Mets last Saturday. Uh, however, his 96.7 mile per mile per hour velocity as a lefty is uh, yet to translate into strikeouts, only 13% strikeout rate. So certainly a situation to keep an eye on as we head to the trade deadline. A couple of other names to keep in mind in that San Diego bullpen. Craig Stammen has some closing experience, and Pierce Johnson has pitched well enough, I think, to deserve to be in the conversation based on skills. But, of course, they both have injuries right now, and we'll have to wait and see what happens with them when they come back. I don't know about Nick Martinez in the closer role, uh, Nick, because it looks like, uh, based on what you said about Mackenzie Gore, he might be needed in the rotation, at least in some kind of sort of more innings than a closer-type role. He, he might indeed. At this point, he's not he's not uh, listed as a starter. He's kind of a swingman. Uh, they've got five starters for the for the coming week, so uh, Martinez would not be used as a starter anytime anytime in the next week. But still, that's a very shallow rotation at the moment. If anybody else gets hurt, then Martinez might need to to be moved into the rotation. In Miami, they've had some bad news about Garrett Cooper. Uh, boy, Garrett Cooper's been on the IL more than I've had hot lunches, it seems like. But here he is back on the IL with what looks like a wrist injury. The, uh, the off-injured Cooper returns to the IL with what has initially been diagnosed as a right wrist contusion. But Cooper says x-rays showed something. So we're still waiting to find out exactly what that something was. For now, we've reduced Cooper's projected playing time to 55% going forward. Lewin Diaz was recalled. He'd been shuffling between AAA and the Majors for a couple of seasons now. Entering play on July 26th, he had 171 Major League at-bats, 10 of which occurred earlier this season. 
He had one hit in those 10 at-bats. So we've dumped, uh, bumped uh, Diaz's projected playing time 20%, partly on the possibility that the Marlins may trade some of their established hitters at the trading deadline. And of course, it looks like this Lou and Diaz, even if he does pick up the role, I, I don't know that I'd be rushing to my fab bidding mechanism in my leagues to put in a bid on Lou and Diaz. Yeah, I think I agree. Not someone I think I would jump on immediately. Well, we've seen a couple of trades. Of course, I'll talk in a minute with Ray about the Benintendi deal to New York, but another New York team, the Mets, made a pre-deadline trade of their own. They sent some prospects to Cincinnati for outfielder Tyler Naquin and a left-handed reliever named Philip Deal. Uh, let's start with Naquin. Where does he fit into the picture for the first-place Mets? Naquin will give the Mets another left-handed bat and add some depth to an outfield that already looked established with Sterling Marte and right. Brandon Nemo in center, and Mark Kenya in left. The obvious opportunity here is for Naquin to get the big side of a platoon with the right editing Kenya, but Kenya is one of those guys with a reverse split in handedness. He has right-handed pitchers much better than lefties, 150 points of OPS better. Naquin also hits right-handed pitchers better, but his OPS against righties is only a few points better than Kenya's. We expect Naquin to start a couple of times a week against right-handed pitching, Serve as a defensive replacement later in games. Naquin is a plus defender in the outfield, playing right field in Cincinnati, while Kenya is slightly below average. Still, Nick, there's only so many plate appearances to go around. There has to be a playing time loser in all of this. Uh, who is it? Uh, outfielder sub Travis Jankowski looks like he's out of opportunities. He's a left-handed hitter like Naquin with a slight reverse split, but he's only hitting 188 versus left-handed pitching versus 158 for, against righties. Uh, known for some speed, but both he and Naquin have three stolen bases this year. If you were hanging on to Jankowski, might be the time to cut bait at the moment. I agree with you. I think Jankowski's probably done. I mean, he might get dangled around in trade talks, but I can't see anybody being really that interested except as some kind of throw-in or salary adjustment, something along those lines. But, of course, the Mets don't worry about salaries. We know that for sure. Um, with Naquin gone, who gets the added playing time in Cincinnati? Through Cincinnati's first 98 games, Naquin has played in 56, missing games on the IL and uh, amassing just over 200 plate appearances. The right fielder looks like it might be Stuart Fairchild. Drafted by Cincinnati in 2017 in the second round, the Reds traded him to Arizona in 2020 in the Archie Bradley deal. He came into the season as the number 12 prospect on BHQ's preseason organization report for Arizona. Report called him an all-around solid outfield prospect average to above average tools across the board, consistently hard contact, good eye, has improved launch angle. Now his average power projection, I think 20 to 25 home runs, could be a 10 to 15 stolen base threat in a regular role. He didn't progress much in AAA. Arizona traded him to Seattle in April for cash. Seattle traded him to San Francisco for a player in cash. And then the circle closed when San Francisco waived him and Cincinnati claimed him in May. He has showed some offensive prowess in AAA this year in the Cincinnati organization. 315 batting average, seven homers, four stolen bases, and just 79 plate appearances. I find that line in AAA in the Cincinnati organization you mentioned, uh, seven homers and four stolen bases in just 79 plate appearances, uh, prorates to some enormous number of both. And I wonder, this is one of those deals where it could be one of two things, Nick. It could be a guy 
who was a fairly decent prospect with some good tools who didn't quite pan out in a number of other opportunities and found his way back into his original organization that drafted him and saw something at the time they drafted him. Of course, I think he said he was a second rounder. And maybe he's just one of those players who needed to figure stuff out. When you get drafted as a ball player, what are you, 17, 18 years old sometimes? And baseball's hard. And we know that sometimes players take a while to get their legs underneath them. And that could be what's going on here. Or it could be he's had 79 plate appearances where he was just unusually lucky. And I don't know how you figure out which is which. I, I don't know either. It's one of those things where, where you're not exactly sure. But if he's going to get regular playing time, it certainly looks like there's enough possibility there that he might be worth drafting if you can if you can let go of him uh Quickly, should he totally bomb out once he's back in the majors? And speaking of prospects, uh, what about the two prospects Cincinnati got back from the Mets? Cincinnati got outfielder Hector Rodriguez and right-handed pitcher Jose Acuna. Neither is anywhere on any top prospect lists. Eighteen-year-old uh, Rodriguez hit three fifty-six with three homers, sixteen RBIs, and twenty-six games in the rookie level level complex league in Florida. Also appeared in two games with Class A St. Lucie this month going one for seven with a walk. He can play all three outfield spots and third base. 19-year-old Acuna is 3-0, 2.67 RA in eight minor league games this year, including five starts. He tossed three scoreless innings and his second start with St. Lucie on Tuesday. And finally, what do the Mets have in Philip Deal? I have to admit I've never heard of him. The 28-year-old Deal has an 11.12 ERA in five big league games covering five and two-thirds innings this season, has made 21 career major league appearances with a combined 9.47 ERA and 1.68 whip, was 2-1 and one with a 4.24 ERA and 30 strikeouts over 23 and a third innings at AAA in Louisville this year. Won't figure in the Mets' immediate plans. One of those guys who looks like he might be what they call a 4A pitcher. You know, he's doing fairly decently at AAA, although a 424 ERA in AAA is nothing to write home about. But then he gets to the majors and, what would you say, 11.12. That's, <laughs> that's quite a jump and doesn't augur well for his immediate future. I don't think anybody has to pay too much attention to that. Uh, moving along. Uh, Los Angeles signed Andrew Heaney before the season, and I think they had great hope that they could turn his career around a little bit because he had been struggling, especially with home runs, but he almost immediately went on to the IL. He returned to the Los Angeles rotation on Wednesday night, a playing time today coverage from Jock Thompson. Uh, how did Andrew Heaney do, and what do we expect for the rest of the season? Heaney shot out the Mets, the Nats, for four innings before leaving a 7-1 Dodger win. Uh, now back in the alley rotation until further notice or until he gets hurt again. Uh, at this point, so far this season, he's appeared in only only uh, four games, but has pitched very well. First half, a 0.59 ERA, 0.85 whip, 193 BPV. Uh, has not had, had not had a chance to throw many innings yet because of his injury, only 19, in, in, innings, thus, uh, 19 innings thus far. But uh, could, could be worth something in the... Uh, in the alley rotation at this point. Um, in the meantime, they released Mitch White, who had just uh, come off six shutout innings versus Washington on a Tuesday night. He's been useful during his brief rotation stay, and in long relief, a career high of 56 innings pitched, 3.70 ERA. Now he's back to AAA to await his next opportunity. 
some of his projected innings obviously go to Haney for the moment. Yeah, I didn't mind Mitch White uh, too much myself, especially in that tremendous lineup in Los Angeles. And as we said, I mean, Andrew Heaney has been nothing if not injury prone throughout his career. So I wouldn't give up on Mitch White if your league format allows you to just hang on to him for a while and see which way the wind blows because uh, Mitch White could be back before too long. There's lots of chances there, I think, as well. Moving along, uh, Harrison Bader in St. Louis, the outfielder, is having a really good season. All of a sudden, he's going to be shut down, and it looks like weeks, not days. Yeah, Bader's still dealing with the plantar fasciitis issue in his right foot. A follow-up appointment revealed it won't require season-ending surgery, so that's good news. But there's no timetable for his return at the moment. So we'll dock him 20% while we wait for better news. Both Dylan Carlson and Tyler O'Neill could see slight bumps as the club will will likely lean more heavily on its regulars, while uh, Brandon Donovan's bat has been cooled significantly over the last month. 68 at bats, 202 expected batting average, 42 expected power index. His glove and versatility have kept him in the lineup. Lars Newtbar should also see an uptick, although his hitting will need to improve if he wants to push for more opportunity. 97 at bats so far, 242 expected batting average, 86 expected power index. Not numbers that make you sit up and take notice, that's for sure. The coverage in playing time today, by the way, from Zach Larson, who covers the uh, Cardinals. Uh, Zach's uh, pretty new to the team and doing a great job covering the Cardinals. And he also covered the story about Ryan Helsley, who's continuing to impress as he seems to have solidified his role at the back end of that bullpen. Yeah, Helsley is looking more and more like the favorite option out of the bullpen. He's gotten three of the last four save chances, all converted and asserting dominance over the last month. 12 innings pitched, 16.2 dom, 7.0 command. Uh, Right-handed pitcher Giovanni Gallegos, uh, his pitching well, nine innings pitched, 13.5 dom, 4.7 command, but also has blown a save over that same stretch and is consistently being used ahead of Helsley in both save and non-save situations. So Helsley looks like the guy at the moment. I had Gallegos practically everywhere where I could have him. And it, it started off great. And then uh, all of a sudden this guy comes along and uh, Helsley routinely throwing 100 plus mile an hour fastballs. And he seems to have terrific command. He does indeed. So, uh, you know, it would certainly be seem to me that they're going to stick with him at the moment uh, unless something goes wrong. Partly because of that 13.5 strikeout per nine dom rate you mentioned, but he's only walking 2.6 guys per nine innings, and that's a 5.2 strikeout-to-walk ratio, which is really good. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Say, before I let you go, when we get out of bed on uh, Wednesday morning next week, uh, where do we think that uh, Juan Soto's going to be playing? Oh, that's a good one. It's really hard to tell, I think, at this point. Uh, who knows if they're if, – I'm certain he's going to get traded. There's no reason for them not to. Uh, it just depends, I think, on who comes up with the best package in terms of in terms of grabbing him. What's what's your speculation? I think he stays in Washington because the, there was a lot of publicity about the four hundred million dollar rejected offer, and it sound that made it sound like whoever grabs Juan Soto in the trade market is going to have to pay him four hundred million dollars or more relatively quickly. But he's actually got a couple, three years left on his original contract as a rookie. Of course, Major League Baseball contracts are tilted towards veteran players in that even a Juan Soto can't demand a big salary. He's locked into a salary of 
uh, way short. It's 800,000, I think, something like that for the first couple of years, which is maybe what one twentieth of what he's actually worth on the open market, but it isn't an open market. And so if Washington can't make a deal for him, and it would have to be a blockbuster, as you say, it's not like they're stuck with a dead asset. He's not leaving at the end of the year unless he forces his way out in some other kind of trade, and that's a possibility. But I don't think Washington is under the kind of pressure that the media sometimes is presenting to us that they have to get rid of him now because this is the last chance he's going to be out the door. He's not going to be out the door. He's going to be in Washington for the next two or three years because his contract obliges him to be in Washington until they say he can go somewhere else. Yes, that, you're right about that. And, and this may be, certainly there's, there's been a huge media push this week, but um, they're not going to let him go cheaply. There's no reason to do that. And so uh, you're, you're correct. Uh, it may be that no one comes up with the package that Washington wants for Juan Soto. Let me ask you a question. Uh, where do you think we'll be uh, in, on Wednesday morning with Jacob DeGrom? Will he have been back on the field by then? I don't know that it'll be by next week, but I think it'll be relatively soon. It looks like all systems are go. Everything I've read in the uh, media seems to suggest that he's pretty much ready to go. I saw there was uh, some video of him pitching in a, a, a minor league game. He looked pretty solid. He didn't look like he was having any trouble. We don't know, of course, what's going on behind the scenes with that injury that he's been dealing with for the whole season so far, but I don't know if he's going to show up pretty soon, but I hope he does. I think it would be just good for baseball. Yeah, it certainly would be, and certainly good for the Mets. And Unless there's something that we don't know about, it sounds as though he will be back in the rotation probably sometime next week. Let's hope so, Nick. Thanks a million for helping us out. Talk to you again in seven days. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site, it's Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday, PD. It is a happy Friday and it's a doubly happy Friday because we have a special guest your predecessor, I guess we could call it, at Baseball HQ Radio's American League Beat reporter, Jock Thompson, joins us from California. Jock, how you doing? I'm great, PD. I don't know about special, but it's fun to be back with you guys. Well, and it's just terrific to have you, I have to say. And uh, and we've asked you here, of course, because there's lots of Angels news coming out over the last day or two. And uh, let's get started off with Shohei Otani. The rumors started circulating, you guys, a day or two ago that the Angels might actually be interested in entertaining trade offers for Shohei Otani, which seems unthinkable considering the role that he's played in uh, Los Angeles area baseball. But apparently that's the case. And some reporter asked Otani after his splendid game the other night, what he thought of this whole deal. And basically he said, well, I'm an angel now. And uh, as long as I'm an angel, I'll keep being an angel, which didn't sound like uh, planting his flag in Anaheim at all. Jock, what did you guys make of that response slash non-response? So you've decided to have me on and poke the bear. I mean, you're, you're, you are at risk of a rant here. Rant away. I'm going to see how this goes and we'll just stay with me. Bear with me here. Um, no, I, I've heard the same things you have PD and, uh, it hasn't seemed that Otani is willing to negotiate. He knows his his uh, his his power right now, and and unlike Trout, I think he wants to go to a winner and make money. He can do both. He thinks, and I don't think he sees it here. I don't think he's going to negotiate with anyone until he's a free agent. Um, and 
honestly, um, if, if the decision is Perry Manasian's, uh, I, you got to listen to everybody. If the decision's Artie Moreno's, who knows? You know, Artie likes bright, shiny things. Otani brings a lot of different stuff to the ballpark. He brings crowds. He brings area interest outside of Southern California. Um, it's an interesting situation. He sells tickets everywhere he goes. That's for sure. You can yes. see the effect when uh, the Angels roll into town and Otani's pitching, especially when he's pitching. The, the attendance goes up five thousand seats almost everywhere that he goes. It isn't already sold out. Uh, Ray, we know that Otani's actually not a free agent until the end of next year, so that kind of adds value to him as a trade chip because you're not just getting him for two months. You're getting him for two months plus another season before he can go out and test his resolve on the, uh, on the free agent market. And you have that whole year to negotiate with him. If you're a successful team, suppose he signed with New York or one of the New York teams or Houston or somebody who's a pretty perennial competitor. So if there were to be a trade, well, first of all, let me ask you, what did you think when you heard the news that Otani had been so bland about his insistence on staying in Los Angeles? Yeah, I took it the way, same way, same way Jock did. I think that, you know, it's, it's a very complicated transaction to try to pull off in season, but I don't think that's enough of a reason to dismiss the idea on its own. Uh, especially, you know, I think there's a sort of a corollary to the Juan Soto situation. Uh, it's not exactly the same thing because Soto's got two and a half years of control and seems like he might be a little more willing than Otani to entertain contract offers in the meantime, it seems like it's just a question of dollars with the nationals, not a flat, I won't talk to you kind of thing. But the, if Soto is drumming up a interesting trade market for two and a half years, you throw in Otani and his unique two-way skill set, but only for one and a half years and maybe less chance of signing him, I think you almost have to treat that as a one and a half year rental, but then given how unique a player he is and the multiple skills he brings to your team, both offensively and pitching, you know, I, I think it's very interesting calculus for a potential buyer of Otani to try to figure out what they're willing to pay relative to you know, using Soto as a baseline. You hear a lot more about what the Soto market looks like. You get Otani for less seasons you only get him for one and a half but he's like two elite players and you know if you you know some of these people who are at least kicking the tires on emptying their farm system for soto have to be just as interested if not more in in emptying their farm system for otani so from an opportunistic perspective if i'm the angels coming back around to perimanasian i think you have to sort of sit here and say a what we're doing with Trout and Otani isn't working. Maybe it's time to try something else. B, if you had some thought of building around Otani and maybe even moving Trout and it, for the back half of his contract to the East Coast or wherever, you know, maybe you had, moving that contract wouldn't have nearly the same return, but it was at least a conceivable possibility. Now the back situation closes that door. Trout's contract is at least for the moment way underwater. So if you take A and B, and then you you know you're Manasian and you're starting to sit here and seeing some of these packages being floated on Twitter for Soto, and you're like, I could probably get even more than that for Otani. Sure, I, I think you got to listen. And is there 
you know, that, all of that to say, I don't know if there's anything more to it than that, but A, B, and C do add up to, as some people have been putting it, the Angels are not hanging up the phone when people call to ask. I was wondering also that the question in all of these big trades, when you talk about Soto or whether you're talking about Shoei Otani, is it's always a question of value back for value that you give. And in the case of Otani, I think one of the extra benefits you get, if even though you're only getting them for the two seasons or part of this season and one full one, is that if you're close to a championship, you might be getting yourself two straight World Series titles or two really good shots at two World Series titles. And that has to turn the heads of a, an awful lot of not only general managers, but owners, especially the guy, the Mets guy, Cohen. I mean, he's sort of thrown a lot of money into the pot and said, I'm going to make this team a winner. And here's a really easy way for him to make that move, especially if DeGrom doesn't turn out to be available as much as they hope he is, if Carrasco doesn't uh, recover and return to something useful as a playoff pitcher. I think there's going to be a market for Shohei Otani, and personally, I think it would probably be a more aggressive market than it would be for Soto, even though Soto's five years younger and he's got longer on his rookie contract. I think at this at these levels, Jock, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think at these levels that the owners and general managers care about those kind of financial details. If there's an Otani out there who can start for you every fifth day and wail the hell out of the ball on the other four, that's something that you can't turn your nose up idly. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And if you break down this scenario into into something simple, it goes both ways. The angels, the angels need everything. I mean, they really do. Outside of Otani and Trout, they need everything. So Manasian has to listen. They have three chances to deal Otani. Now, before this trade deadline, preseason next year, and next year before the trade deadline. So in each scenario, it seems to me his value gets less and less, particularly if you're talking to teams like San Diego and St. Louis who are interested in competing now, particularly San Diego. And San Diego is the first team that was mentioned as a potential suitor for Otani. Um San Diego wants to get to the World Series. They could do it this year and they could do it next year with Otani. They've got a farm system that could give the Angels what they need. Perimination has to listen just for his own job security because if he doesn't and they don't get what they want for Otani next year, the Angels are in a world of hurt for the next three, four years. St. Louis Ray also has guys who are in the major leagues right now that could be dangled. Um, Dylan Carlson, maybe O'Neill, the young guy at third base whose name escapes me. But these are guys who are in the major leagues and playing reasonably well. And I don't think that they would turn up their nose at, uh, if you're the Cardinals, you would say, oh, we're saying no on all of those guys if Otani's being dangled. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, good point. I Like I said, I, I think if it's Manasian's decision, he, he starts making these calls himself. Um, if it's Moreno's decision, all, all bets are off. Ray, what do you think the chances are? Jock mentioned San Diego and St. Louis. What do you think the chances are that one of the two New York clubs, or I've even heard, believe it or not, Tampa might be interested, and certainly Tampa has a lot of prospects to throw into the pot as well, and maybe they're getting tired of being always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Yeah, I think the potential pool of Otani bidders is a lot wider than the Soto ones uh, because... It's the shorter term, uh, you know, and because of the more magnified impact in that shorter term, uh, you know, Tampa certainly makes a little sense. Uh, you mentioned Houston earlier. Um, nobody's mentioned Seattle yet among the three of us, but I think there's a, you know, there's a potential fit there. Um, 
and there are you know any number of teams we're not considering at all uh, in this conversation that could look around and say, let's back up the truck of prospects. Like Jock said, it's n- nobody has to worry about do I have the right fit of prospects for what the Angels need? The Angels need everything. So you know, yeah. just give me prospects one through five, seven, and nine, and you know the Angels will figure out the positional fits and whatever else it is. Um, it's not that kind of a concern. It's just a, it's just a raw talent that they're looking for, and they probably care less about is a big league ready or is it the 18 year old and who's lighting up single A? They just they just need a talent infusion, and you know there are any number of organizations that can do that. I don't have to worry about the price tag on Otani because Otani's making relative peanuts this year. Next yeah. Year. All of those teams that you mentioned are, are viable given, given the two year window. Tampa Bay seems very viable. I mean, the, the cost of Otani, relatively speaking, if he can get you to a world series uh, within the next two years, they might even be able to get uh, 10,000 people in there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and Seattle, Seattle has prospects to do it. Race, right. Uh, if, if, if San Diego were willing to open the thing, they have a shortstop. The Angels need. Here comes the ramp. The Angels need a shortstop so badly it's not funny. And 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 C.J. Abrams is a shortstop. He's a shortstop that could play for the Angels for a long, long time. So there are all kinds of fits here. I'll throw you know just to play this game. I mean, you could go organizations one through thirty, but you know who makes a heck of a lot of sense? Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. And Baltimore has prospects after all these, uh, yeah. any of these teams drafts. that are like on the rise or a year away, or, you know, um, you know, have, you know, the, the, the Baltimore ownership situation is kind of murky, but that doesn't matter the way it does in the Soto deal again, because Otani makes no money right now. It's a, you know, it's just a, it's, it's more of a pure baseball deal than a any team you know, $500 million acquisition the way it is. With Soto. Any team who thinks their window is the next two years, yeah. you know, is should be in on this. And I have to, out of loyalty and national pride, mention the Toronto Blue Jays, who sure. also have prospects, who also have guys on the field right now that they really can't even find spots for in a lot of instances. Um, there's plenty of maneuvering that they could do with guys like Espinal and uh, not the core guys, but certainly at the second level, the, the young catcher uh, Moreno is probably a, a top chip that uh, would be interesting to somebody looking to acquire a, a prospect. There's lots of ways this could go, and it's going to be super interesting. I, I'm, I wonder if those phone lines are really burning up. But, Jock, the other side of this is if the Angels trade Otani, and, of course, the justification will be we're going nowhere, you know, this is a chance to rejuvenate the team, how's that going to play with the uh, fan base? That's what's fascinating. I mean, first, the, attendant, the attendance is definitely going to slip. It will be something new because – for the last 10, 12 years, even though they haven't been a contending team, they've consisted they have been. So it's almost like Stockholm system. I don't know what the fan base is going to do on something like this. What Manasian has to hope is that if it's a negative reaction to one-year blip, things start coming together a little better next year. Um, there's going to be an initial you know, letdown. But overall, again, to get the Angels out of this cycle, I, I see it's something that they have to do. But obviously, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do it. Moving on, uh, Jock, I'm curious about what the local press and what you're learning about Mike Trout's injury, which seems to be, as of yesterday or so, a lot worse than it was three days ago. Yeah, obviously, I'm not a doctor. I just kind of play one on the radio and in playing time today. Um, But um, we've watched Trout lately and and a lot this year we always do and uh, I, I don't know if whether it's casual or not but one of the things that we've noticed is 
he's having more and more problems hitting pitches up in the zone. He's swinging, missing a lot more, particularly in the in in the recent slump that he's had. Um, anyone who throws him a pitch um, at the waist or below is just they should be they should be sent to the minors immediately because he cannot hit pitches up here right now. Um, I, I don't know if it's related. Uh, um, the back thing worries me. He's 30 years old. I mean, you, it, as an Angel fan, I'm particularly sensitive to big contracts being signed and then players coming up with injuries or career slumps that, that, that you know, just don't, don't justify the contract. So I, I, think, I think Angel fans should be worried about that. And, Jock, I have to ask you also, assuming that Trout doesn't play much or at all for the rest of the season and perhaps that Otani leaves and clears out the D8 spot, who's the playing time beneficiary? Is there anybody we need to be looking at as fantasy players to think, well, maybe this guy's going to get some playing time and get some, uh, get some run time. Joe Adele, for instance, so there's this Manura Sierra you wrote about who is the beneficiaries here? Yeah. All of those guys that you mentioned, I mentioned Sierra uh, recently in the playing time today piece, uh, um, if you look at his, I think he's got an OPS of under 800 in Salt Lake City, which is pretty mediocre given given Salt Lake City. Um, but he does have contact skills. He's a good defender. He can run, too. He's already stolen two bases for the Angels. Um, so if you're looking for something like that, uh, he's going to get some playing time. He's he's already getting it uh, um, with Trout out. Uh, the outfield now, the, most of the time outfield is is Adele, uh, Brandon Marsh, and, and Taylor Ward. But but there's so many problems with with particularly Marsh and, and Adele right now. Uh, um, uh, Sierra's going to Sierra's going to get his at bats. Other than that, um, playing time. If if Otani gets traded, obviously you have to wait and see who the who the what the haul is for for an Otani trade. That could change change a lot of things. But uh, the Angels just don't have a lot of depth at the at, at the major league level that's really fantasy attractive right now. Really? Yeah, you know, I had last week with uh, you know when I saw Sierra pop up in your lineup, which was like then roughly like a week or two after Monty Harrison was you know briefly <laughs> on your roster, right? I was like, what other like you know former Marlins <laughs> outfielders can you dig up? You know, where's where's Lewis Brinson? Is he next? And you know, throw Jeff Conine in there too. <laughs> well, that's why Jonathan Villar was such an easy call three weeks in advance coming totally. to the Angels. <laughs> you know, there's just nothing there. But seriously, Ray, what have you done with the uh, playing time apportionment, given the injury to Trout, especially? Yeah, like Jock said, you know, Harrison is inter- is interesting because he can run, and it looks like the playing time opportunity is there. But you know, Jock manages that playing time, and you know, he hit the nail on the head. I think you know, with this situation pending, both between not knowing how long Trout's going to be out, even though I think all three of us are kind of pessimistic, and then not knowing what comes back in an Otani deal. I I think we're writing all of our playing time allocations in pencil right now. And before we leave this topic, uh, Jock, what about the longer term for Mike Trout? What do you think we should legitimately be expecting for Mike Trout over the next two years, four years, five years as his contract moves towards expiry? Well, if I can get beyond my pessimism that comes from Big signings like Garrett Anderson after the fine career he had, uh, Albert Pujols, uh, Anthony Rendon, uh, you know, you name it, there's a, there's a long list. Um, at, at best, I think what we're looking at with Mike Trout is a, you know, a 260 power hitter with patience. Um, I, I, I don't, I think his average is steadily, you know, 
declining. If you look at the contact rate, it's really, it's just inching down, you know, just a little bit over the years. Uh, who knows what the ball and, and what everything else had to do with it this year. But uh, the power is still great. The question is, how often is he going to be in the lineup? And, you know, that's the other thing, tying these two things, discuss- these two discussions together. That's the other point we didn't explicitly make. But I think matters here is your motivation to trade Otani might be affected by the fact that Trout needs to DH more and he can't yes. do that. Very interesting times. We'll be looking forward to the trade deadline for sure, especially to see if Otani is traded. Jock, thanks very much for coming in and helping us out. I appreciate it, and I hope we get to talk to you soon. If not, I'm sure we'll see you at First Pitch Arizona. Yep, sounds good, PD. I'll be there. And and, I, and actually, Ray had all of this. You didn't need me, but thanks for having me on anyway. <laughs> well, we like to get that local flavor, you know? Yeah, yeah. You bring the emotional charge that I just can't replicate from the, the uh, angst. The perspective. Angel angst, we call it now. Yeah, <laughs> you can't spell angst without most of angels, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Jock. We'll talk to you soon. See you guys. Take care. It was good to hear from Jock Ray, uh, but let's continue. The Yankees made the news by breaking the ice on the trading deadline frenzy. They traded three pitching prospects to Kansas City and got back outfielder Andrew Benintendi, the worst kept secret on the trade market this year. How does Benintendi's arrival scramble the Yankees lineup? Yeah, you know, it's always interesting to see how these things play out. I think our expectation would have been that he dropped into like the five or six spot, maybe pushed the struggling Josh Donaldson down and sort of lengthened the middle of that order. But then sure enough, in his first game yesterday, uh, he debuted up at leadoff. So uh, he went over four for a strikeout with a strikeout. So maybe we'll have to see uh, if he plays himself out of that spot. But, you know, they're, uh, they're, 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 Aaron Boone is at least demonstrating an initial commitment to him. And he hit at the top of the order when he was in Boston, did he not? Yeah, he he appeared up there. You know, he's uh, you know, especially in his last couple of years, you know, the power has waned. Some of that's probably got to do with Kansas City, and we always get excited about the left-handed batters moving into Yankee Stadium. But he's uh, you know, when he's at his best, he's a high average, you know, good OBP hitter. So there there is some logic to it. It's not it's not Boone putting uh, you know, Isaac Snead up there or anything like that. The other guy I thought of when I first heard this news is Joey Gallo, who is already like standing on the brink of the end of the plank with some, a couple of guys with cutlasses behind him, kind of prodding him in the back. And this can't be good news for Joey Gallo either, because they've already got too many guys in that DH outfield mix. And all of a sudden, what's he hitting 089 or something? He, he looks like he's not long for the team. I think that's right. Uh, you know, people talk about the trade possibilities and somebody had a, uh, I forget the, I forget who it was. I apologize for not giving credit, but, uh, you know, talking about, uh, on Twitter about Gallo's trade possibilities, they, they responded, that's a funny way to spell DFA, which is probably the, uh, the more likely way that's going to go down. But, but in all seriousness, however, he gets off the roster, whether it's a, a trade or a, or a, uh, just a flat cut someone's going to look at him and think they can fix him, right? Whether it's just a question of another hitting coach or him being completely blinded by that short porch and needing to get back to uh, you know, the first principles of, of his approach at the plate as flawed as they've always been. You know, he's not this bad, right? I mean, unless he suddenly turned into one of the Chris Davises before our eyes, which I guess we can't totally rule out, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not willing to call him a carcass just yet. 
No, I mean, and there's all kinds of teams who just gonna are going to be interested in a guy who can hit home runs like he can hit home runs, and I'm sure he'll sign somewhere, especially if the Yankees are picking up all but the minimum of his big contract as far as payment goes. I was curious about where you're thinking of playing time for the Yankees once Giancarlo Stanton is back in the fold. All of a sudden, you've got Benintendi and... Judge anchoring two of the outfield spots. Then you've got either Stanton or Hicks in the third outfield spot, presumably in left. And then you've got Glaber Torres at DH. It seems like they're still like one slot short. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts here. And, you know, I, I get skewed a little bit when I see these teams come to Boston, for instance, because. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks when they were ago when they were up here, like even Matt Carpenter was out in left field, right? Which I think is probably not something you want to do anywhere except Fenway Park, where there's more than like three square feet of real estate to cover. But you know, it but it just shows that th- there are a fair amount of ways they can construct this, right? And if you look at the playing time allocations post Stanton trade, like we've got Carpenter down to uh, twenty five or thirty percent playing time, which you know, among these options makes sense, but the way he's hit, if he keeps hitting for the next week or so while Stanton's still out, it's going to be tough to sit him down four days out of five or whatever that computes out to. And they have enough ways to get people into the lineup with, like we said, uh, you know, the, the rotate, you know, putting Stanton in the outfield, freeing up the DH spot, uh, you know, LeMahieu, Torres, Anthony Rizzo. And, you know, let's not forget the Yankees aren't, despite their recent cooling off, they're not really in any danger of losing one of the first two spots in the playoffs. So they've got flexibility in August to September to sort of turn everybody into a four or five day a week player other than probably judge. So they're, you know, it's probably going to be a pretty fractured situation and they'll, uh, they'll be giving out a lot of maintenance days if it's the case that all of these guys are healthy. And of course, the minute Stanton comes back, somebody else could get hurt and continue to, you know, keep this problem from coming to the surface. I was wondering if you thought it, that there was a likelihood based on what you said about Josh Donaldson, as we started this discussion, could he be sitting on the bench a little more often? They move uh, LeMahieu over to third, let Torres play second and do the outfield the way they were going to do the outfield and the DH, who is not, whichever guy's not playing the outfield and have Donaldson be the odd man out. Yeah, they could certainly do that. I, and, you know, especially against, you know, tougher right-handed pitchers that Donaldson's been having a struggle with. I think there's there's a lot of logic to that, picking up Benintendi and Carpenter, Rizzo, et cetera. They've got the ability, this Yankee team has the ability to get more left-handed than a number of Yankee teams have, have in recent years. And I think that's something that they're focused on for, the postseason, but I also can imagine a scenario where they really want to get Donaldson going and have him peaking into uh, late September and October. So he may very well get a lot of rope there because uh, they're willing to absorb the hit of having him continue to struggle in the hopes that he figures things out and becomes a, you know, a much needed right-handed power bat behind judge and Stanton in that six or seven hole in that lineup. 
Of course, everybody's talking about what does the deal mean for the Yankees, but it also has playing time ramifications in Kansas City, and that might be further complicated by the news that Salvador Perez, who's supposed to be out for another four or five weeks, is all of a sudden in a rehab assignment and may be back next week, as far as we know, shortly right after the uh, the deadline. So all of a sudden, it looks like there's a playing time squeeze coming in Kansas City as well. You've got Isbell, Nick Prado, Melendez, Pasquantino and Sal Perez, and they're all mixing and matching among outfield, first base, catcher, DH kind of situation. What's going to happen in Kansas City when the dust settles and Perez is back? Yeah, it's not necessarily the same squeeze the Yankees have, but in terms of you know prospects and the fact that these are all pieces of future Royals teams that they hope are pretty good, it's kind of interesting to see how they're going to squeeze this together. Per, you know, Perez, like you said, you know, I think the original estimate was eight weeks that he was going to be out with the thumb injury. But I think, you know, he's starting his rehab assignment this week. And I think it's only week five or the beginning of week six or something like that. So he's a little bit ahead of schedule. Um, And, but while he's been out, it has allowed the Royals to look at all of these kids because Melendez can catch and Pasquantino and Prado cover first base and DH and so on. And that does get kind of squeezed. Um, Does Melendez go to left field now or maybe Prado with, um, you know, now that that Benintendi spot is opened up, but at least at the moment, it's Kyle Isbell who is getting a look out there. And, you know, frankly, I think, you know, he merits that look. So they've got another, you know, I assume the Perez rehab assignment will be a week or so. So they've got a little bit of time to figure this out. And maybe when Perez comes back, he'll only catch half the time or something like that. And that will, um, you know, they'll ease him in, but these kids all need at bats and they're going to, I assume, get creative in finding them. And then you've got, uh, who is actually doing pretty well on his 717th call up and, and he's hurt, but he'll be coming back shortly. And at the same time, Michael A. Taylor is supposed to be on the trading block as well. So that, that part of it might at least get self-settled if they can deal Taylor for prospects that they don't want to play. All of a sudden it creates a little more space for them to play some of their prospects that they do want to play. That's right. And we also talked last week or the week before about the possibility of Merrifield leaving town too, which is another piece of this puzzle. None of these guys we're talking about can, uh, you know, can play second base, but there are, you know, there are, there are some ripples there. And then much like we talked about with Otani, you start to not worry, but the other, you don't worry about this, but the other ripple effect here is what they get back in any of these trades. And if there's anybody else who plugs right in to any, any of these spots. Yeah. I don't think I'd be holding my breath if I was Kansas city, that I'm going to get a major leaguer back. I mean, maybe a very high level prospect that his team doesn't like or can't fit, but I don't, I don't see Kansas city given the talent that they're sending out is going to get anybody back. They didn't really get anybody of note back for Ben and and Ben and right. a really good player. Yeah, but but bunch of a ball pitching, et cetera. But you're right. right. There, there's a you, you make a good point, but there's always the possibility that they end up with you know picking up somebody else's rehab project. You know, not Joey Gallo per se, but you know one of those kind of kind of things that we're going to take a look at. You know, player X who has fallen out of favor with his other team, and uh, maybe we can, maybe we can turn him into something. In Minnesota, the Twins activated infielder Miguel Sano from the 60-day IL, and they optioned outfielder Gilberto Celestino to AAA. Gosh, Celestino had a nice little run there, but it sure fell apart. Uh, Rick Green for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Where does Sano fit into a Twins lineup that was actually doing pretty well without his 093 batting average? 
Yeah, you know, it'd been so long ago, and he was maybe because he was so bad that I think I actually forgot that he has not been out all year, right? He did actually get 50 something at bats in April. And like you said, his batting average started with a zero, which means that the Twins would have been better off if he had actually missed the whole season. Uh, and, you know, let's not forget that Jose Miranda and Alex Kirilov have both done a decent job of filling in uh, at first base between them. You know, they've accumulated a full season's worth of playing time, you know, 300 plus at bats and they've hit, you know, probably a combined 270 with 12 home runs or something like that. The 270 batting average is certainly more than you would have expected from Sano. Uh, but, you know, all that said, Sano's back. He ducked into the starting lineup on Tuesday, the first day he was activated. I did sort of chuckle at the fact that he was batting ninth because that is not your prototypical number nine hitter. That you know, Miguel Sano was never mistaken for uh, Buddy Biancolana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Speaking of old Kansas City players, uh, we we expect Minnesota to give Sano a look back at first base, maybe move Miranda and Kirilov around as well. And what about Nick Gordon? Yeah, boy, we've done the uh, Nick Gordon stock watch up and down, uh, you know, seemingly changing week to week here. Uh, he's, you know, he, he's been picking up at bats. You know, the stolen bases are interesting. Uh, he fills in when Buxton's not in the outfield, but, uh, you know, and, and had been doing so well in that role that he was picking up sort of random at bats all over the field, kind of playing the role that, uh, Arias and even William Dastadio used to play on this team, filling in all over the place. But, uh, he probably goes back to being the primary back backup for Buxton, unless this roster gets so squeezed that keeping Sano around means that, they need to send down Miranda and Kirill off or one of those guys. And then maybe uh, Gordon ends up picking some, picking up some more opportunities, but right now uh, they're going to try to get away with carrying both of Kirill off and Miranda in addition to Sano. In Texas, Ray, the Rangers had some pitching moves. They activated right-hander Dane Dunning. Pretty nice surprise this year in some ways. Uh, they optioned Taylor Hearn to AAA and signed free agent left-hander Dallas Keuchel. Rod Truesdell covers the Texas Rangers for playing time today at Baseball HQ. Uh, what's going on in Texas? Well, I think Ranger fans are probably more excited about Kabar Rocker than Dallas Keuchel, right? But uh, to be fair, we will not see Rocker, certainly not in the majors this year. So, uh, you know, pr probably in terms of immediate Im impact, it's going to be Keuchel before Rocker. Um, but, uh, you know, they've got some pieces. You know, Dane Dunning came back off the IL and looked decent against uh, the Mariners last weekend. He's been hanging around with uh, a near 4.00 expected ERA. So he's been at least soaking up innings in between IL stands. He's had a couple of them this year. Um, but we'll see how that ankle holds up that uh, put him on the IL and whether that has to be managed either with missed starts down the stretch or shorter outings or maybe even a maybe even a bullpen roll. I think that's all sort of uh, sort of in play. Rod noted that Dunning's still getting plenty of ground balls. He had a 53% ground ball rate entering that recent start, but his velocity and his strikeout rate have been sliding, and that really puts him at the mercy of batted ball luck and uh, infield play. So uh, we'll have to see how that works out. But meanwhile, Dallas Keuchel, <laughs> I mean, will this guy never go away? Clearly, he'll never go away. Um, you know, obviously been terrible this year, you know, released twice now. And, you know, I think we can, we can sort of say released, you know, with cause twice now, right. He's been, he's been just that bad. It's hard, hard, hard to say he's gotten a raw deal either in Chicago or Arizona. Uh, but I, I thought it was at least a little bit interesting. Uh, I'm not advocating anybody go out and pick up Dallas Keiko, but his path to playing time here is probably 
I, I I would imagine the Rangers grabbed him as the eventual eventual fill in if they trade Martin Perez to a contender by the end of the month. You know, Perez, of course, has been a revelation this year, and. You know, Perez is every bit as much of a journeyman, soft-tossing left-hander as Dallas Keiko is. So, you know, if if Martin Perez leaves his, uh, you know, his uh, his new change-up grip or whatever it is in in the locker for Keiko to casually pick up on August first, then you know maybe Keiko, you know, can replicate that success. Uh, who am I kidding? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was thinking while I while I was talking about the the. The fact that Keuchel just keeps coming back over and over again. Wouldn't it have been great if the pitcher who did did this exact thing that Keuchel is is doing had been Mike Myers? Right, exactly. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his hand keeps popping up out of the ground, or however that worked. I never saw any of those movies. In Seattle, the Mariners recalled right-hander George Kirby, optioned right-hander Matt Brash, Alan Davison covered the story for Playing Time today. Kirby had been originally sent down, Ray, to hold down his major league innings. What do we expect for the rest of the season? Yeah, he he had been pitched very well, pitching very well. Uh, you know, kind of fitting the scouting report of being a you know, not a budding ace, but a strike thrower who had shown, you know, really good command and had made a smooth transition to the majors, which as we've talked about uh, in the last year or two, you know, isn't always a sure thing. You know, we've seen plenty of young pitchers come up and get smoked uh, and have to go up, up and down a couple of times before they figure it out. But Kirby, Kirby transitioned smoothly, but then got, like you say, about a, a, a two week extended all-star break is about what it amounted to when they sent him down. Uh, but he comes right back up. He's only walking uh, 1.3 guys per nine, which goes to show where the uh, you know sort of command and control profile um, comes from. But he, uh, you know, the news is not all good. He throws a lot of strikes, but the downside of that is, uh, you know, his hard contact, the barrels against him are not great. So he gets squared up fairly. Uh, fairly regularly, which is kind of what I said, keeps him that sort of mid-rotation profile instead of the uh, budding future ace. So he's back, but uh, you know, clearly the two-week vacation was done with workload in mind, and I think we probably have to be mindful of continued workload restrictions with him in August and September, whether that's shorter starts or missed starts or you know, just getting the last couple of weeks of the season off. I think any of those are probably in play. At a glance, when you look at Kirby's line, it isn't really that bad. I mean, he's got a 350 ERA, which it's playable in modern baseball, especially. The strikeout rate is down around 23%. That's a concern. He doesn't walk anybody. But I think the problem is, as you said, he's in the zone and he's getting hit. And he's getting hit pretty hard. And his strike, his home run per fly ball rate is one and a half per nine. And that's in Seattle. You know, it makes you wonder if this guy's future is going to be predicated on him doing something about getting the gopher back in the hole. Yeah, it seems like it's potentially a adjustment away where he needs to either, you know, a mental adjustment where he needs to waste more pitches or throw more out of the strike zone or try to get the swing and miss and pound the zone a little less. Or maybe he needs to, you know, change the arc on a breaking ball to, you know, have it dive into the dirt a little bit more and get out of the zone. Uh, but, you know, he's young, he's a work in progress. And, you know, I think the best thing we could say he is, you know, he's certainly not embarrassed himself in his debut. So it's, what, it, it's on him to ref, refine his craft from here, but it's a pretty decent starting point. It is. He's got a 120 whip and you look at that and you think, well, that's not so bad either. But then you realize, given the fact he never walks anybody, that's almost right. all hits. 
And some of those hits aren't just singles. So as I said, it's something to worry about. And finally, uh, Matt Brash was kind of a weekend darling for a little while there. When he first came up, he looked pretty good. What's your take on Matt Brash now that he's back in AAA? Yeah, it seems like the, you know, we didn't get a good look at him in the second time around. You know, he started the year in the rotation, but then got sent down and they converted him to a reliever while he was down there. So how, how you know, how is that relief transition going? We didn't really get a look, uh, you know, what he in being up while Kirby was out. He only got about five relief innings uh, and he looked he didn't look all that different than he did as a starter in the sense that, you know, the strikeouts were there, but the control and command were not. Uh, didn't really seem to be changed in that small sample. And that's, of course, what we were looking for when he got sent down is that, you know, turning into a reliever and maybe shelving some of the uh, second and third pitches and focusing more on being a two-pitch pitcher might sort of spring spring load the command and turn him into a, uh, you know, very effective high leverage reliever. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, so, you know, he'll go back to the minors and keep working on that transition. And I would imagine we'll get another check-in on him, uh, you know, in September, if not sooner to sort of frame our expectations of him as a reliever going forward. Yeah. A lot of that's going to depend, I think, on Seattle's team context. If they're still in the playoff chase, which is not an illegitimate thing to think about, that bullpen is going to be very hard to break into. That's a really good set of arms exactly. that they have there. And they're not in a selling position where they're not going to sell off Seawald or Castillo or Munoz or anything like that. Or uh, so there's not a, you know, there's not an opportunity to backfill there. Although Diego Castillo did just go on the IL, so uh, if he's out for a while, maybe uh, maybe there'll be an opportunity for Brash if he, you know, again his job is to go to AAA and you know demonstrate some command that's been in absence so far. Very busy week, going to be busier still next week, or maybe not. We oftentimes bang the drum on this trading deadline, and then uh, it just turns out the drum was a garbage can lid, and we, well, don't want to get any Houston Astros uh, Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) That's a loaded reference right there. Yeah, we can't do that. Don't want to alienate those Houston fans, all three of them. uh, So we'll just uh, stop here, and we'll... uh, come back and talk more about some fantasy baseball after the deadline, depending on what happens. And in the meantime, have a great weekend and I'll talk to you then. Looking forward to it. And a special thank you to Jock Thompson, who joined our American League News team this morning. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Rudy Gamble from Razball. He'll be coming to the plate for his second appearance next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I want to remind you of another great article at BaseballHQ.com. In the Arsenal Report, analyst Tanner Smith looks at winds of change in the National League Central, with deep looks at Reds right-hander Luis Castillo and Pittsburgh left-hander Jose Quintana, both mentioned in trade rumors. And don't miss the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. We'll have another Friday full edition in seven days' time featuring an expert interview plus all our usual great stuff, National and American League news analysis, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's next Friday on another Friday full edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Rudy Gamble from Razball. Rudy, welcome back to part two. Thank you for having me back. We had some interesting goings on between part one and part two. We were recording this on Thursday afternoon and during the Baltimore game, Trey Mancini had an inside the park home run, which was a 
can of corn fly ball hit to right field. Josh Lowe lost the ball in the sky. It came down and just nicked his glove and hit him in the face. It rolled away, and Mancini chugged all the way around and barely scored at the plate with a slide. And even though it was a playable ball, even though it was a can of corn fly ball, the official scorer says it's an inside-the-park home run. Oh, I just watched it. That That is... I hope no facial injury there, but uh, yeah, like being an outfielder is kind of like from a scorekeeper standpoint, it's like being like a white male. Well, let's talk about some news in real baseball and get your fantasy take on it. Uh, as we speak, there's been no movement as we near the deadline in the ongoing Juan Soto situation. We touched on this earlier when we were talking about balancing of values, but when we wake up on August 3rd, Rudy, where do you think uh, Soto will be playing? I'm saying most, I think it's most likely he's still in Washington. Um, I think the size of the deal is so massive. Um, I, I could just seeing like, I don't think the leverage is going to change much during the uh, off season and you might get more takers. Um, only cause like, if you think about it from like, I mean, there's teams like the Dodgers that have been aggressive with these moves. Think like that Trey Turner Scherzer move. But almost every, but the other teams that are pretty much guaranteed for the playoffs, it's just kind of a history of people being real passive and not all in like that. Um, so, yeah, that would be my bet that they they don't get that they hold off and try to drum up more in the off season where maybe there's more teams that are a little bit more. Uh, optimistic. Or perhaps, uh, I think you're exactly right. I think he's going to end up in Washington too. And a big part of it is going to be because of what we were talking about. It's going to be so difficult for both sides to agree on all of the values that are involved. It's, it's worse than an NBA trade where they actually have to balance, uh, salaries in the salary cap consideration. Of course, we don't have that in major league baseball, but as you said, do you want to give up four top prospects with a combined potential value in the tens of millions. If, if three out of the four of them hit and they get what, three years a piece off, off of each of them at a greatly reduced price all of a sudden, and then you got to pay Juan Soto on top of that 40 million bucks a year or whatever he wants. I mean, he's still under contract on his, uh, first time through kind of contract, but it's going to be really difficult for anybody to look across the table at the other guy and say, we have to agree on what the values here are and everybody, it's a, a fact of behavioral economics that everybody overvalues what they have in their hands and undervalues what the other guy has in his. Yeah. No. And I mean, you kind of would, this only makes, it kind of only makes sense if you get some no brainer prospects, you can always get the, the high ceiling prospect, the, you know, uh, maybe think like Fernando Tatis, uh, who the White Sox traded for James Shields, but was in single A. There's there's a lot that or O'Neill Cruz, right? Was uh, I think the on the Dodgers. I think the Dodgers traded in the Pittsburgh. I'm not sure what deal that was, but again, it was like you know a very toolsy, high chance of flame out, but you take a chance. But like, yeah, Juan Soto, you're like. Yeah, you, you would assume you're getting a top five prospect. And there's no, I'm trying to think like the prospect that you'd have to trade for Juan Soto, like the number one prospect, 
I can't think of the last time it happened, right? I mean, like, teams generally trading very, very good prospects. Like, maybe you could say, like, the Dodgers trading Kelbert Ruiz or something like that. that yeah, that's, that's a good a very example. Good, yeah. But who's traded, like, a Julio Rodriguez, Ronald Acuna level prospect? Yeah, it just doesn't happen because, as I said, these guys are just um, simply too valuable to their teams as possible linchpins of their lineups from when they start for the, the next three to five years. And and uh, Juan Soto's partway through that process also, as I said earlier, but he's going to he's going to want a big raise at some point and i can see him actually putting a you know pulling a bit of a tantrum and saying i want my big extension and i want it now and what do you do then after you've surrendered all of these prospects and you thought well i'm going to get a couple of years of juan soto at a discount before i have to pay him the big bucks and he comes in and says no i want those big bucks today yeah yeah no so I, I, it'll 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 be an it'll be an interesting one but I, I would almost automatically think that uh, if it's this top five or top 10 prospect, I'd be less interested in them in dynasty and redraft if they get, if, if, it, if one of these teams trades them, and like if they, if particularly, I mean, like the, the general teams we expect to make this trade are probably very sharp. So if they were to give one up, it'd be shocking. I'm trying to think maybe like Kellenic. It's so hard coming up with it, that example of, oh, I, I can't believe they traded that guy. I, I was wondering about Gabriel Moreno in Toronto. The Blue Jays were rumored as being a, a destination for Soto, and and certainly they could use a left-hand bat in that lineup, which is very predominantly right-handed. And on Baseball HQ's prospect list, Moreno is number 18, and a lot of the guys in front of him are in the big leagues now, so he's probably more like top 10 of guys who aren't in the big leagues at the moment. Yeah, but Ruiz, that's one of the few positions where they've got young talent. Right. So as I look down the list after that, then you start right away, you get into guys like Jack Leiter, who's probably a few years away and is certainly no sure thing. Uh, Pitchers in general aren't, um, and so on down the list. I mean, I think what they're going to get offered is guys like Vidal Bruhan, who've kind of come up and flamed out a little bit, you know, a package of those kinds of guys that all the teams have, you you know, try to pitch the nationals on the failed prospect who still has talent kind of thing. But I can't see Washington because of their fan base saying, Hey, look, we traded Juan Soto and we've got Vidal Bruhan and a bunch of Vidal Bruhans. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't see it. It's also kind of comical thinking Tampa Bay would pull this trade off. Yeah. Trade like eight nickels for him and then trade. Yeah. Then get like three bucks back when they trade him like two years later. That'd be such a Tampa move. You mentioned in the part one of our interview that, uh, that's something Tampa's pretty good at moving prospects out at just the right time to, to cash in on the new prospects coming in. So I, I'm, I'm not ruling anybody out at this point, except for the, right. you know, the Pittsburgh's and Cincinnati's of the world who just don't have the assets and are not in a position to really need what Juan Soto brings, but which players do you think are the most likely to get dealt uh, at the deadline this year? I mean, it, it seems pretty clear, uh, the Cubs are going to be selling, uh, that the, the Contreras and Hap uh, goodbyes are quite uh, pro, quite uh, vi- visible. Um, more than I can remember, just about 
any time else before a trade was done. Uh, I uh, David Robertson was clearly a guy that from the get-go was a guy you'd flip. Um, I think Josh Bell in Washington, I think that'll be an easier part to unload. Um, and had been, a, I can tell you the truth, had been a pretty good acquisition by Washington. Uh, Bell's done well there. Um, I'm more, I mean, the teams that it seems obvious, like Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, I think, you know, like we saw that the Pittsburgh like traded Vogel back for like a yeah, decent reliever or something. Um, I could see Quintana gone. I could see maybe Tyler Molly gone. And I don't, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah. I'm kind of more skeptical on can, can they get enough for Brian Reynolds or Luis Castillo? You know, like I, I do think those are ones where it's like you don't trade at all costs. You only trade, you know, because um, I think both are still in their contract next year. So there's, it's silly to go to trade too cheaply. Right. And I don't, you know, I mean, I could see someone like the Astros basically saying, "Are we've got a really good window right now. It's not going to last forever. Um, you know, we could play Reynolds in center versus kind of, you know, we could flip McCormick or Myers as part of the trade. Um, and then move Reynolds into a corner because, you know, maybe like Brantley might not be, you know, long for the team. Um, you know, will Houston wow them with an offer? I don't know. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking the under on on the things. But like I said, I think the Chicago guys are definite. Josh Bell seems like a definite. Um, and I actually see like Pittsburgh and Cincinnati not like Cincinnati, like, like a bread and Drury. Sure. Like, you know, that's kind of found gold. You, you yep, trade him. Exactly. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it with a uh, Luis Castillo. Cause I do think uh, you're going to want to try to extract more than most teams want to give right now it's tough it's it's such a if you're already in the playoffs changing your probabilities it's just there's not a lot you know it really usually takes like this is the missing piece like i got like maybe when the cubs won and they traded glaber torres for a role chapman because that team just needed a closer like those are like the one the one missing piece things i get yeah, you know, guy. Like, is Luis Castillo the missing piece to a World Series champion? If he's the third pitcher on it, maybe. Maybe, maybe. What about relief pitchers? Uh, you look at some of the also ran teams. Gregory Soto in Detroit. They said everybody's up, including Tariq Skubal. Uh, Bednar, David Bednar in Pittsburgh. Uh, they certainly don't seem to have a lot of need for him, and he's kind of struggled the last month or so. But he's yeah. up till up till then he was pitching pretty well and could certainly fit into a setup role for somebody that needs that kind of support. Of course, guys like that, I don't think are going to really get a big haul in return is the problem for those teams. Right. I mean, Detroit's got uh, Soto. I mean, Will Vest is a good arm if he's been looking pretty good. Fulmer hasn't been great. But again, I could see, uh, yeah, I mean, my general thinking with um, with teams in the playoffs is like relievers kind of get streaky and some of that might be due to health. Um, I mean, I think of how like Tampa just seemed to have that year where like Fairbanks was just dominant 
And he wasn't the only guy dominant coming out of the pen, but we've, it feels like pretty consistently for 20 years, like, you know, some of the teams that do really well in the playoffs are just, their bullpen just go on a heater. Um, I, I, I mean, I was, I grew up a Yankee fan. I'm, I'm not really a fan anymore. Um, I'm more of a fantasy fan, but like I remember that '96 team. I think they had like four or five relievers just pitching lights out then, um, and so it's a kind of imprint in my mind. Like since then, it feels like there's always, um, always that. So um, yeah, I mean, Soto would Soto would be quite good. Um, Bednar, I'm skeptical on only because he's from Pittsburgh. I mean, like it's, and I, I think that he's pretty beloved, about as much as beloved <laughs> you're gonna get um, there. So it would take, it would, I think it would take a lot. To, it would take, be a lot easier to get the Tigers than it would be to get like Bednar. Um, and it's just a matter of uh, who gets potentially injured. Um, but I mean, if you told me like the Yanks trade for Bednar, I wouldn't be shocked. Um, but I also would expect it to be like, you know, maybe two out of their top 10 prospects between like six and 10. I would, I, I'd be absolutely floored if it was any one of true consequence. Like it, it'd be the, uh, kind of like what the Yanks have traded. You know, they've traded guys like Tyro Estrada and Diego Castillo. That was, uh, that was, I think Diego Castillo was in the Clay Holmes trade last year. The Pittsburgh might not want to trade. If, if the Yanks really like Bednar, Pittsburgh might not want to trade it to him. <laughs> they, they learn. Yeah, it's one of those things like when you're in a fantasy league with a guy who always wins all his trades and he he picks up the phone and calls you or emails you and says, how about a trade? You go, no, you're too good at it. I don't want. And I'm not that good at it if you're Pittsburgh, of course. Uh, what? Listen, Ray and I were talking earlier about this story that came out um, on Thursday, which was that, uh, Mike Trout has been diagnosed, not just with some kind of sort of oblique issue or something like that. It's a, it's a degenerative condition in some part of his uh, skeleton, like on, uh, in his rib area or in the, where the ribs join the spine. And this is pretty serious and they're not going to be able to play him full time. Even once he gets back, it doesn't look like. In the meantime, there's all kinds of rumors that they're thinking about trading Shohei Otani. What do you think is the likelihood of that? Because that would be a big deal. That would be bigger than Juan Soto, I think. Yeah, I do, I don't see how you trade Otani. Um, I just I just don't. I feel like uh, it. I mean that that that's definitely a franchise under Moreno that is uh, kind of stars and scrubs mentality uh, for using f- a fantasy. Um, fantasy salary cap kind of term. Um, I I don't see how you... Like, maybe if it was Otani's last year of the contract, um, I, I, I'd be real shocked. Because I, I think, again, it all comes down to you'd have to wow them. Um, but, I mean, yeah, Otani's great. Um, and the Angels are not. Um, but... Yeah, that that's something you better come with like a, a really good offer. And again, I don't Angels don't have a history of that. 
And not only that, but uh, what are you going to say to your fans? Okay, Mike Trout is not going to play because he's got this injury problem. And now the one guy you've got to come out to the ballpark and see is now in New York or Atlanta or wherever he might be. I mean, they could get down to like Oakland level audiences if they're not careful. It's true. Yeah, I don't. um, Yeah, I, I think that that's and that's the difference between a real major league team and a fake fantasy dynasty team. Fake dynasty team would have no, you know, a good manager would be like, yeah, sure. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to, I'm not going to win with Otani. I might as well reload. Right. But you, you just can't like, there's some guys are easier than others. Like, um, I mean, trading a Soto is tough, but I mean, the reality is they couldn't sign him, or that, yeah, the yeah that they felt they put a, a a great offer out there, um, knowing that there's still a possibility they come up with something that works. With the Raphael Devers injury news, uh, Boston seems to be slipping out of the race in the American League East. Baltimore keeps winning. Do you expect the Red Sox to be sellers here? They're they're denying it everywhere that I read today. Yeah, th- that is you know um, I know in the first segment I was. I came off maybe a little bitter on their ability to uh, when they sold uh, the the or they traded the the Adrian Gonzalez Crawford thing, and they've had the betting. I'd say that they've had a very good uh, recent history of uh, of course correcting when necessary, and they've had a very a lot bumpier of a ride in terms of they've had some last places mixed in with all the success. So yeah, my thinking is JD Martinez is definitely there for the taking. Um, I would think Eovaldi, they would totally listen. Um, although he has not pitched very good since coming back. I think his fastball is a little light. Um, Enrique Hernandez would certainly be a guy I could see them trading. Um, I'd be less likely to believe that, uh, Bogarts is traded, you know, um, particularly because he has an opt out. So that would be, um, I can't imagine trading much for Bogarts right now, knowing that he might just be gone at the end of the year, that it could, it could easily be a rental. Yeah, it would be, it would almost certainly be a rental, but I guess doesn't it usually go in these things that if, if you have a player in that position that team Boston says to team B, um, if you guys want to talk to Raphael Devers, I mean, to, uh, to, uh, Bogarts about an extension now I'll give, we'll give you four days to, to try to work something out and then we'll, we'll work out a deal. If he'll, if you, if you kind of guarantee yourselves a few more years of Bogarts than just the option year, which you might not even get, he can opt out. Right. No, it's, it's, it's possible. I, I would, yeah, I think, I think the first three would be easier. Cause I, I, like I said, I think, um, not, not that I think there's gonna be a tremendous market for JD Martinez, but at least, uh, universal DH certainly gives him more opportunities than he other, than he would have even last year. Um, yeah. And something like, I mean, Eovaldi has pitched quite well the last year or two. Um, I could see, you know, taking the opportunity to kind of cash in, um, cash in while at, at a relative height for something like him and betting against, he has like a Charlie Morton 
uh, sustained excellence through uh, his mid, through like yeah his mid thirties. And a free agent at the end of the year as well. Uh, there have been a couple of smallish deals, both involving Pittsburgh trading players to the Mets. Uh, first of all, what did you think of the Mets acquiring Daniel Vogelbach? I mean, I don't mind the acquisition as a ma- a marginal improvement as on your as a platoon bat at DH. Um, yeah, I, I I don't I don't really understand Dominic Smith. Um, the the only one of the few people I could think of where 2020 was a uh, a highlight in their recent life, um, but uh, but yeah, I, and JD Davis too. So I I, I get I get it. Um, trading a reliever, um, you know, and I, I don't know much about uh, the reliever Holderman. I think. Um, but it's a, it's a little counterintuitive to me only because he's if he's pitching well now and in the bullpen, you need all the bullpen help you can get in the playoffs. Um, so it's a little weird that that's what you're trading versus like someone in double A that can't help you this year. Because the Mets window, I mean, I don't know how long it'll be, um, but it might, you know, you kind of have to always expect it to be shorter than you think. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised that they traded Holderman as well. He's right around a two ERA and a one whip, and he's doing it in the big leagues. He's not doing it at AAA, uh, although he has pitched in AAA this year and, and very well there as well. So this is a bit surprising, especially given the role, as you said, the bullpens play a pretty big role in playoff baseball, and all of a sudden you're giving away a guy who looks like he can get guys out, and it seems like quite a lot of capital to give up to get Dan Vogelbach a, a platoon dh as you said right i mean like it's almost one where you could almost see pittsburgh maybe even flipping him flipping holderman um yeah you know you got control and or maybe yeah you're backfilling um someone like bednar or uh yeah they don't really have anyone else that crow i don't know who else you really want to trade in that trade for in that bullpen um yeah, and who's and what the Mets also trade for Michael Perez? Yeah, he's a catcher with a f- sub six hundred OPS. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that you know sometimes you trade um, to improve your strength, like you you just first like trying to address a weakness, and the Mets clearly have a strength that we hitting catchers, so they wanted to make sure they had enough of those. Uh, uh, yeah, no. It's. I mean, the reality is having having solid depth, and I mean, catcher bats are. It's really you know if, if they like the way that guy calls a game. I don't know. I, I kind of see. I always find it a little weird late season catcher acquisitions, <laughs> because you know it seems like there's there's definitely chemistry that can get built. And that you know, like I, I think like how like the Yanks got with like Trevino or something. Um, you know, like that, 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 that would be more ideal, but I suppose having a, having another one on the ready can't hurt. I might've oversold Michael Perez, uh, not only sub 600, but 526 OPS this year so far. And I was a little surprised because despite, uh, some struggles at triple A by Francisco Alvarez, he was really crushing the ball in double A 
And it looks like they, I thought they might've given him a chance to, to show what he could do at the major league level as a bat, you know, and it may be that there are defensive shortcomings. I don't follow the Mets that closely, yeah. but, uh, I, as, as a prospect, I know I, I've seen, um, Alvarez's name pretty near the top of the list. I mean, they, they might trade him to the Phillies so as an improvement on like for corner outfield or center field. <laughs> Just because the Phillies are so awful at yeah. defense, um, yeah, uh, yeah. I I think like exposing like a rookie catcher late in the season for a pennant run is it's just so hard. It's not a generally a good move. Um, but I, I so yeah, I, I'm not shocked on that. Maybe as like a DH coming up, but again, Vogelback, you know, is a is a good fill in there. Of all the proposed trades that you read about, which one or two, if actually consummated, would have the greatest effects on their fantasy baseball outlooks? I mean, anytime a closer is traded, you're, you've got like the domino effect. So, I mean, you know, Bednar gets traded, then you get, I, get, I think De Los Santos is the guy there, then is Bednar coming in in the eighth or ninth? So you've got, so the closer ones are always key. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to think, uh, besides Bednar, who's the, I mean, I guess it's Soto. I mean, if he's really up there, there, you know, I don't know how many true closers are out there to be had because there's just so few closers (laughs) or, or, you know, I mean, like so few guys that are locked in as the, as the key save guy. Um, I mean, I could see Brian Reynolds if, uh, you know, if, just proposing if he gets traded to the Astros, um, that could have a pretty big swing in his value just just on the uh, an environment change on park factor plus runs RBIs. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't seem like that would really uh, be a major swing in standings. I think saves is... Saves and stolen bases are always the quickest way to impact standings, and I don't see anything that's particularly, to me, like going to change things on stolen bases. So it's always the closers. Josh Rojas in Arizona seems like people have been waiting on him for a long time, and this year he's actually kind of coming through, especially on the batting average side. He's got 11 stolen bases as well, just six home runs, but he's got a couple of positions of eligibility. I don't think he's going to be involved in any trades, but I'm just curious what you expect from Josh Rojas for the balance of this season and particularly where you think he might move to in 2023 drafts. Well, I mean, we, I have, um, uh, we haven't projected. Um, so the Roswell player pages have like this per kind of a per game value against lefties and against righties and then projects to like 150 games or 650 plate appearances to give you a sense. So, yeah, looking at that, it's like Josh Rojas seems like, you know, it seems like a 15-15 type pro-rated, um, which has some value. Um, more of a 250 hitter, his BABIP's been really high, and that typically is going to come down. Um, yeah, so 250-15-15 hitter with dual or triple eligibility certainly has some value. I mean, like, um, you can argue, yeah, I mean... You know how different that is, maybe from like a a Cronenworth, whose values 
certainly not gone up after this year. Um, so, but then you tell me a 250-15-15 type, the next question's like, where are they going to hit in the lineup? And that's the other thing. So if, if you told me Rojas is locked in toward the top of the lineup, then I don't think there's really, aside from, uh, you know, Marte and Walker today, the, right now, that certainly increases the value a bit. Um, just not a guy I'm going to overpay on. Um, always kind of wary on guys that don't have, like fifteen, fifteen, kind of um, could go down. You knock that down to ten, ten, and it's awful. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a way they like. I kind of prefer, you know, you want a little bit of that, and you want to pay cheap for that type of skill set. Like, yeah, how Ortega was like available on Fab last year, um, and I, you know, but otherwise, I kind of want guys who have uh, better floors than that or maybe they're plus in stealing or plus in power um then then kind of this type that uh is a lot more fungible than maybe it sounds when you say 250 15 15 yeah when you put it that way it does sound like a little less interesting of the two you'd probably rather have uh 255 25 or 250 25 5 because you can get a bigger move in whatever category it is. There's something to be said for 15-15 if you've got the the roster in place where that kind of thing maybe moves in both categories, but that seems like a little difficulty. He's been hitting first in the Arizona lineup. Uh, David Peralta's been hitting sixth, and David Peralta seems to me like one of those guys, I've got him in a couple of drafts, and he because he's one of those guys that gets described as a boring veteran. And then he comes yeah. out every year and he, and he delivers a, a pretty decent stat line. And is there any chance here, do you think, that he could find himself on another roster at the deadline? I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean you'd imagine Peralta. And yeah, I mean, I feel like Charlie Blackman is in that camp. And then yes. they're also the types that, yeah, when you look at your, when I look at my rankings and look at ADP, like they're, they're inevitably near, get near the top during, during draft season. I didn't draft either. Um, and that they, they probably had, they had some value that I, I kind of let go. Um, you know, just thinking they were cooked. Um, we, yeah, so, I mean, it, I, I think, I mean, like you're, you're not going to get much for a Peralta. Um, I mean, that, that, that's almost the type that you could also see that even happening. I don't know if they still have the waiver period after the deadline, you mean? Yeah. yeah I think they, they still do, have that. Yeah. Uh, he's got. I, I could. That, that's the type that could pass through on waivers potentially, um, and then you know you get someone kind of late. Um, yeah, I mean, so there's possibly he, he's he's definitely been a you know a mild bright spot on a otherwise rather meh team. At best, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rudy Gamble from Razzball. And Rudy, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. As the rapidly dwindling season comes to an end, we'll be looking at boons who are going to be good down the stretch and banes are going to be the guys who are not so good down the stretch. Let's start in the American League. Who's a batter who could be a boon? So I'm going to say... Uh... Vinny Pasquantino, he, uh, 
you know, he hasn't done, he hasn't let, let the, lit the world on fire coming up, but I am impressed that his K rate has generally stayed down, which you don't expect. And we know he's got the power. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bullish that maybe he could, he could put together, um, you know, and, and, you know, for the, the boons, I looked at players that are available in 20% or more of 12 team um, NFBC. So obviously not taking guys that are on every team, thus it doesn't really matter. So Pasquantino was a guy that jumped out that it's like, yeah, I could see why he's not rostered in some leagues, but uh, I like the upside. I do too. A 16% strikeout rate, 12% walk rate is pretty good for a guy who's just basically getting his first uh, look at major league pitching, 104 plate appearances so far this year. That's hardly anything, and I'm I'm very impressed with Vinny Pasquantino. Uh, how about a National League batter who could be a boon? So this one I'm a little more, you know, like I've noticed Austin Slater is getting played more playing time in San Francisco and generally hitting leadoff. I think they've had, um, you know, they've been a very platoon heavy team, but I'd say the three lefty outfielders, um, uh, Pete, Jock Peterson, Lamont Wade, and Luis Gonzalez have all struggled recently, and Slater's getting a little more playing time. And he's got a pretty good homer and speed and decent uh, OBP tool. Um, and I do like OBP guys because that, that definitely improves your chances of staying up at leadoff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a mild one that, that could be, you know, could be useless in a week. They go back to all their platooning. Last year in San Francisco, he had uh, 12 homers and 15 stolen bases in only 300 plate appearances. So if you double that, all of a sudden he looks pretty interesting. All right. Over to the mound. How about an American League pitcher you think could be a boon? Um, so I think he's going today, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I, so again, Brady Singer was a guy that jumped up on my rest of season values. Um, he has, I think been pitching well of late. Um, yeah, you know, it's hard to buy into Kansas city pitching, but it, it's been so, so, uh, unremarkable from a, but, uh, it's tough trying to find any starting pitching so that that would be one guy i'd uh i'd consider um down even in 12 teams and in the national league a pitcher who could be a boon well the guy i have on a lot of teams uh both drafted and picked up in fab is nick ladolo um he's 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 had mixed results this year i mean if you watch him he could he could look really dominant um you know, I think he's just a guy that maybe you protect you. You might want to protect yourself against in a bad matchup, um, but I think he could. He could. He might not get a ton of wins on that team, but um, could definitely help on the K's. And I, he showed really good control in the minors. I mean, he's got the he's got the K's um, potential. Um, he's shown good control, and I I think it's going to happen eventually. It might not happen this year. But there's the potential for a bit of whip upside if he could if he could maintain it. Thirty one percent strikeout rate, under ten percent walk rate, and that those are good things. A, a lot of analysts in this business say 
if you have nothing else to go by, go by strikeouts minus walks is a really good way to start your looking. Uh, let's talk about some Baines. These are players you think are not going to be helpful down the stretch. And again, we'll start in the American League with a batter. Uh, I was just looking at my notes. I have Mike Trout. That's that seems that that seems like insult to injury. Um, but uh, yeah, and it, for the Baines, I was looking at guys. I think that uh, are owned in eighty more than eighty percent of leagues. So not saying like, oh, a Bain. I don't think yeah, and, and I don't think uh, Michael Perez yeah is <laughs> going to be an much, asset. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I. I I mean, like, so I'll just stick with it. Yeah, I think the Mike Trout thing is, it's a lost year. I mean, we saw what happened last year where, you know, like, I mean, the calf injury that lingered forever. Um, I could I could see, I could see Trout playing a couple games a week for a couple weeks and then just calling it a season um, on September 1 or something like that. Um, so, but... Yeah, not the boldest of calls. How about a National League batter who's a bane? This this is probably a, a guy that's a bit more marginal, but I was surprised he was owned in as or rostered in as many leagues as uh, Jerks and Profar. Um, he made a great catch the other day, but uh, he he's still profiles ju- as just a guy, a jag, as a hitter. Um, so I think he had a decent start, um, but. Yeah, he, he's 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 a type I would uh, I would consider a streaming hitter at best. Over to the mound again, an American League pitcher who could be a bane. Corey Kluber is a guy that I have ranked pretty low for rest of the season and rostered in a lot of things. Little worry about that he's going to run out of steam. That and he, he, I think he has showed some uh, slowdown of late. Um, so yeah. I'd be wary of him. And finally, how about a National League pitcher who could be a bane? Well, my readers uh, or my subscribers would, would, there's probably some of them watching, listening to this and laughing and saying, I bet he's going to say Tony Gonsolin because Gonsolin's kind of outperformed his projections for like so many weeks in a row. Um, The one guy who's actually ahead of him on this, that seems even more of a fluke, is uh, Miles Miklas. Um, I'm so yeah. I, I I tend to go pretty heavily on the K walk type guys, and with an assumption that Babip is, you know, going to regress pretty hard. So Gonsolin's been one that, um, and yeah, to me Miklas is a pretty strong uh, candidate to have a uh, to kind of. Uh, give back some of the gains he's he's uh, provided over the last couple months. Tony Gonsolin is probably the most cited Bane in all this whole season. As a matter of fact, people keep waiting for him to, to finally pitch to his actual metrics, but uh, so far, not so much. Yep, and that's just one where it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes there's, there is a momentum kind of thing. <laughs> so yeah, roll, roll with, you know, feel free to roll with him on solid matchups uh but uh yeah always keep one foot out the door <laughs> on that type rudy gambles boons vinnie pasquantino of kansas city austin slater of the giants brady singer of kansas city and nick lodolo of cincinnati 
some good news in Cincinnati that they could probably use. Uh, his Baines, Mike Trout of the Angels, Jerks and Profar of San Diego, Corey Kluber of Tampa, and Miles Michaelis of St. Louis with an honorable mention to Tony Gonsolin of the Dodgers. Uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Rudy Gamble. So uh, Twitter is the only social thing I do, uh, even in real life to a certain extent. It's just sad, but uh, uh, it's at Rudy Gamble on Twitter. Um, I'm at, you know, I'm at Razball's the only site I work at. I'm one of those weirdos that only is on one site. Um, and uh, yeah, you can get my projections there. And there's a two-day free trial and everything for it. Uh, but And there's monthly subscriptions available. So can get in for the stretch run. I'm a one-site weirdo too, so power to the power to the one-site weirdos. Uh, it's the only way to fly, I think. Maybe not the most lucrative we're, way to fly, but yeah, we're we're, we're, this, we're, monog- we're monogamous old fogies. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Rudy, thanks very much for doing this. I was expecting it would be interesting and fun, and it's been very interesting and very fun. I do hope we can talk again later in the season and at First Pitch Arizona. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. Rudy Gamble works for Razball. We'll take another quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But one more Baseball HQ resource I wanted to mention is the Eyes Have It podcast. In this edition, Brent and Chris take a look at the recently completed first-year player draft with reports on several prospects, including Drew Jones, Ouch, Tamar Johnson, and Elijah Green. And Brent will also look at some double-A players in the Guardians and Orioles farm systems. That and the other items I've mentioned are only a few of the literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's Big Hurt column, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. Expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Detroit outfielder Kerry Carpenter is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Excitement appears to be building in Detroit ahead of Major League Baseball's August 2nd trade deadline. Soon-to-be sellers, potential vacancies in Detroit's lineup could effectively create opportunities for players like 24-year-old Detroit Tigers outfielder Kerry Carpenter. Through two levels of the minors this season, Carpenter is batting 308 with 27 home runs in 318 at-bats. Wow, and he's still at AAA Toledo. That, however, could change quickly via trade or promotion. 
Although, according to a July 26 report by MLB.com's Jim Callis, the Tigers are highly unlikely to shop anyone with prospect eligibility. Still, Callis added that there could be something to moving Carpenter when his stock has never been higher. Even so, Kerry Carpenter, a former 19th round 567 overall pick from Virginia Tech in 2019, isn't exactly a household name yet. That's why 24-year-old Detroit Tigers outfielder Kerry Carpenter, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Nevertheless, few could argue that Carpenter is experiencing a breakout season. After belting 15 home runs in 112 games at Double-A Erie in 2021, Carpenter launched 22 at Erie in only 63 games this season prior to his Triple-A promotion on June 25th, about a month ago. That's a huge jump. So what happened? In a June 6th article appearing on MLB.com, Erie manager Gabe Alvarez was quoted as saying that Carpenter went through a swing change this offseason, reportedly manufactured with the assistance of St. Peter's, Missouri hitting instructor Richard Skank. In case you haven't heard the story, Skank, the owner of a local billiards parlor near St. Louis, never played higher than Division II college baseball, according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's Ben Fredrickson, in a July 30th, 2018 article, but wanted to help his sons improve their swings. Studying video of Barry Bonds from his basement, Skank developed a launch quickness hitting approach that got the attention of Dave Matranga, a then-struggling minor leaguer in the Angels system. Fast forward to 2016, and Matranga, now a sports agent with PSI, introduced his client, a then-struggling Aaron Judge, to Skank. The result? Judge hit 52 home runs the following season, his rookie season, reportedly crediting and still using Skank's approach. And he's not the only Major League success story using Richard Skank's launch quickness approach. Once again, 24-year-old Detroit Tigers slugging outfielder, Kerry Carpenter, using that approach in a retooled swing, has already launched 27 home runs in 74 minor league games as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about a beef I have with Major League Baseball's scoring. Earlier in the pod, when I was talking with our guest Rudy Gamble, we talked about bad scorekeeping and how it might affect fantasy outcomes. Well, here's another example of a different kind of scorekeeping problem. I was watching the Kansas City-Toronto game the Saturday before last, July 16th if you're keeping score at home, when I saw something that kind of frosted my mug. And since I wasn't drinking anything at the time, I thought I'd share the story with you. The teams had traded runs in the third and traded two runs apiece in the fourth, so for the arithmetically challenged, it was three all after four innings, with both starters out of the game. It was going to be a battle of the bullpens. Both bullpens actually did quite well. For the Royals, Jose Cuas and Wyatt Mills threw two and a third scoreless innings, scattering a couple of hits and a walk, with three strikeouts. The Jays relievers struggled a bit more, but they kept pace. Trevor Richards and Tim Meza allowed a hit apiece, and David Phelps gave up two walks, but no Royals crossed the plate. So after six, still three all. 
This is where I sat up in my chair and put down my e-reader. If all went according to the Jay's usual practice, the next guys up would be Adam Simber and Jimmy, don't call me Yimmy, Garcia. You can see where I'm going with this. Both Simber and Garcia are on my Tout Wars American League only team, and the wins category is, as usual, very tight. I should say at the outset that I was anything but confident in actually getting the win. The Toronto offense seems to have made a secret pact not to score runs when any of my pitchers are in line for wins. The other night against St. Louis, Jose Barrios threw five and two-thirds and left in another 3-3 tie. Tim Meza came in for the one pitch out and Toronto scored five runs in their half to give Meza, not Barrios, the win. But back to the Kansas City game. Simber gave up a hit in the seventh, but no runs, so he was in line for the win, and it was looking good. In the bottom of the seventh, Alejandro Kirk hit a one-out single, and Bradley Zimmer came in to pinch run. Then Taylor Clark threw a pickoff that almost caught Zimmer. Oops. Kansas City challenge, and they did catch Zimmer. He had indeed been picked off, and the rally had indeed been snuffed. In the eighth, Garcia mowed down the Royals' four, five, six hitters with two strikeouts and a can of corn fly ball. Again, just one run, and I get the badly needed win. But alas, in the bottom of the inning, Josh Stomont gives up two flies on either side of a walk to Lourdes Gurriel, who ends the inning by getting caught stealing. To the top of the ninth we go. Don't call me Yimmy mows down the seven, eight, nine hitters. Couple of fly balls and another strikeout. Here comes the win, right? Nah, not yet. Scott Barlow dispatches the Jays' 8-9-1 hitters without allowed out, and we're going to extra innings. For the top of the 10th, Jays' closer Jordan Romano comes in, gets a couple of quick outs, then serves a cookie to the Italian breakfast, Vinny Pascantino, who serves it briskly over the right field fence to score the ghost runner, Brewer Hicklin, and give Kansas City a 5-3 lead. For the bottom of the 10th, Casey brings in Joel Piamps, and again you can guess what happens. Safely clear of helping my pitchers in any way, the Jays resume hitting like the 27 Yankees. Guerrero lines a screaming double to deep center field, scoring ghost runner George Springer, 5-4 Royals. Raymond Tapia, the hottest hitter on the planet, smokes a single up the middle to score Guerrero with the tying run at 6-all. Bo Bichette singles to push Tapia to second, Teoscar Hernandez singles to score Tapia, and the game is over. Jays win. Now the official scorer comes into play. Romano was the official pitcher of record when the Jays scored the winning runs, and the scorer simply jotted down the W by Romano's name. But as Quick Draw McGraw used to say, well, just hold on thar. In the official rules of baseball, Rule 10, Part 17, says that where the starting pitcher can't be given the win because of insufficient innings, and there was more than one reliever, then, and I quote, the official scorer shall credit as the winning pitcher the relief pitcher who, in the official scorer's judgment, was the most effective. Think about that. The most effective. A comment to the official rules offers more detail. The first comment says, and again I quote, the official scorer in determining which relief pitcher was the most effective should consider the number of runs, earned runs, and base runners given up by each relief pitcher and the context of the game at the time of each relief pitcher's appearance. If two or more relief pitchers were similarly effective, the official scorer should give the presumption to the earlier pitcher as the winning pitcher so the earlier reliever should get the benefit of the doubt. Hmm. 
Don't Call Me Yimmy threw two complete innings, did not allow a base runner, and struck out three Royals. He pitched earlier in the game than Romano, who threw one inning and gave up two runs on a home run that didn't hit the CN Tower because it hit the right field seats first. So in what world was Romano more effective than Jimmy Garcia? In what world was Romano the more effective pitcher? Well, in no world, except the world occupied by this particular official scorer. And this is one of the scoring rules almost always ignored by modern scorekeepers. It costs players the statistical benefits they earn on the field. It's not as egregious as awarding a home run to a hitter whose can of corn fly ball bounces off the noggin of some inept outfielder and over the fence, but it's not a lot better to give a win to a reliever who gives up runs at a critical time of the game and gets bailed out by his offense. They can do better. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 29th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 30 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Rudy Gamble from Razball. Rudy's a fine fantasy baseball analyst and builds terrific projections, and he's a nice guy in a business full of nice guys. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. But take a second to go to Apple Pods or Pocket Cast, Google Pods, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview and all the other usual great stuff, our National and American League news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries, all coming up next Friday on the next full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again on Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.